the Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. This means that we donate 1% of our time and 1% of our revenue to conservation. If you want to find out how you or your business can get certified or learn more about the organization, visit fishandwildlife.org. What's up, guys? My name is Parker McDonald, and I'm your host, and you are listening to the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. Turkey season is officially over in most of the country. I believe in all the south, southern states, it is done, complete. Hope you guys had a good turkey season. I uh, I had a great season. Um, ended it in Nebraska last week with uh, with my buddy Zach. If you listen to last week's episode, we talked a lot about that trip it was a really good time we had fun and we both killed turkeys on public land up there in nebraska and it was just a really really fun trip something different you know um i'm used to hunting turkeys in pines and uh uh creek bottoms hardwoods and things like that and uh totally totally was not that we were in pines but it was ponderosas and uh Man, the amount of hunting pressure was insane, but we did manage to kill a couple birds. Um, if you watch, if you're subscribed to the YouTube channel, uh, the Southern Ground Hunting Channel, you're not going to see those videos until next spring. So um, I have found that it really gets good momentum when I post videos before the season starts. And uh, so next spring, you'll be able to see those videos from Nebraska. I hate to do that to you if you're super looking forward to it. Um, but, uh, it is, it is what we're going to do. So, um, make sure you subscribe to the channel. We're going to be posting a lot of uh, cool videos this summer, this off season, maybe even throw in a few fishing videos if you're into that kind of stuff, but definitely doing some deer prep. And, uh, and that's really what this podcast episode is going to be all about. I am currently sitting in a motel room or hotel room in Dallas, Texas. Me and my wife are on a, like a little getaway just us two no kids and uh, I did not want to skip an episode this week but I also um, I want to be able to spend time with her we're going to Six Flags here in a little bit we got some stuff planned and so I haven't had a whole lot of time to um, prepare a podcast necessarily for this week but uh, do not fear we do have an, if you're listening to this you know we have an episode this week what I'm doing is I'm going to put all of the Bobby Worthington series in this one episode. So it's a long podcast. If you are not familiar with those episodes, they've by far been the most popular uh, episodes that that I've done with Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. And uh, I get people all the time, constantly. We did it last summer for the Local Legends series, which is going to be coming up very soon um, in the month of July. So look forward to that. But... Um, Definitely, without a doubt, the most popular podcast episodes that I've done have been these episodes with Bobby Worthington. We planned on it being one episode. It turned into a three-part series. So what I'm doing is I'm going to put all those together. You're going to have a long podcast to listen to. So for you guys who are driving long distances, this is going to be great for you. If you're uh, if you have a long commute to work, 
then this may be a couple few days for you to listen to if you haven't heard it. But if you have heard it, it's always good with these type of episodes with the amount of knowledge that's being passed on from Mr. Bobby in these episodes. Um, you have to listen to it multiple times. I've, I've listened to it multiple times myself. And uh, I felt like this was a great opportunity for us to kind of get our minds back into deer mode. Out of turkey mode, back into deer mode. A lot of you guys are probably already there. But, um, yeah, that's what this episode is going to be. It's going to be a long episode with Mr. Bobby Worthington. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into that, I want to take a minute just to thank our partners at Spartan Forge. You can use the code SOUTHERNGROUND at checkout and it will save you, I believe, 25% on your order we are going to be having bill thompson with us here very soon uh we actually we're trying to work it out to where he could be on this week but with my schedule and his schedule kind of conflicted and so he's going to be on very soon we'll let you guys know more about spartan forge what it is what you have to uh, look forward to in the future from them and uh yeah i think you're going to enjoy that so it's important to know that if you use this code and you i mean you're looking at like 20 bucks that you're going to have to spend for Spartan Forge for the year and you'll never pay more than that no matter how much they come out with no matter how in-depth the app gets that's always going to be what you pay so I think that's a pretty cool incentive from the guys at Spartan Forge so go check out spartanforge.ai see the outfitter hear a little bit uh, read a little bit about what it's all about and uh, I think it's, uh, it's going to be a really cool episode with Bill, so look forward to that. Also, our partners at Tethered. Now, you have got Teach and Train still going on across the country. Um, make sure you go to tetherednation.com and click the Teach and Train tab to see if there's something going on in your area. I know they're going to be doing one here in Alabama soon. I'll give you more details as we get closer to that. But uh, Tethered is the number one, I mean, really, honestly, the number one source for all things saddle hunting. And um, they've got sticks, they've got ropes, they've got carabiners, they've got the saddle, they've got platforms, they've got all kinds of stuff. Everything you need to get into saddle hunting, you can find at tetherednation.com. Also, go check out our friends at screegear.com for uh, hunting camo. You can use the code Southern Ground. It'll save you a little bit on your purchase they got a new pattern that just came out, just just got released recently, and uh, so you can check out that. Check out their clearance items. They've got a lot of great stuff on clearance as well. Um, some of my favorite pieces of equipment from Scree are actually on clearance right now. So go and check that out uh, at ScreeGear.com. And, of course, we cannot forget New Canoe for all things kayak, hunting, kayak, fishing, we're right now in the heat of the Yakin' for Bass Challenge that we're partnering with uh, Chasing Tales Outdoors Podcast in, and uh, I've seen a lot of new canoes on that, uh, on our uh, on our standings board, lots of new canoes being used, and there's a reason for it. I mean, it, it is 100%, in my opinion, the best platform for kayak fishing and hunting, no doubt hunting. People have opinions on fishing. People have different desires for what I like. The new canoe works perfectly, especially the Unlimited. And uh, that's their new kayak from New Canoe. So go go check out newcanoe.com for all things kayak. All right, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, kind of from the vault episode with Mr. Bobby Worthington. 
All right, everybody. I am extremely excited about this episode today. Um, in fact, I, I believe, Drew, I, I don't know about you, man, but I think it's probably going to be one of my favorite episodes that we have ever done. And that's just basing on the on the phone calls that I've had with our guest to this point. Yeah, man. I, Parker, I'm so jacked. I actually bought one of one of his books um, and um, have dove into that. So, man, I'm just so excited to 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 hear from our guest today, man. So let's get into this. Um, we have got on the phone our local legend for this week, Mr. Bobby Worthington from Tennessee. Bobby, how's it going? It's going great. I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to speak a little bit on on deer hunting. Well, we're we're more excited. Like I, I've been excited <laughs> for for a month about this since since uh, since somebody told me and recommended you to me, and I, you know, I did some digging and I uh, found some really impressive stuff, and finally uh, came across your phone number through a, a mutual uh, acquaintance and gave you a call, and we talked. I don't know if you remember this, Bobby, but we talked for a good 35 minutes, and I wished that I had just pressed record on my phone after that conversation, because I was like, that would have been an excellent podcast right there. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about it, and I know Drew is. Uh, it's not every day that you run across somebody in the South who has the resume that you do, and so I'm really excited to get into the, the meat and potatoes of all this, but if you could, Bobby, could you just kind of give us a brief summary of yourself, um, where you live, what you do, um, how you got into hunting and things like that. Yeah, I, I live in a rural area in southeast Tennessee. Uh, live on the, the Cumberland Plateau, and then there's the Saskatchewan Valley, and then on the other side is Waldron's Ridge, and it forms this valley that's about 100 miles long. It's pretty well known it's one of the only geographical features they say you can see from outer space my family moved into bledsaw county in 1804 and i've got deep roots here and i've been here all my life and it's a i grew up in a very rural area and and we didn't have a whole lot and uh, i got into deer hunting young in life uh, my dad actually told stories that they, there weren't any deer here when he was growing up and and they were very few in this county when I was a young man and wanted to start hunting. We actually had to travel and go to some public hunting areas to be able to hunt. But the population, like most places, has been since then. But back in the 60s and 70s, when I first started hunting, we were kind of in the restoration movement. You know, you didn't you didn't shoot any does and you let them populate. And, and the state game has just done a good job with that, as they did in most states. And uh, we've got a good deer hunting population now. And uh, I just went through the stage like most people. At first, I just, of course, I was bow hunting. Never did care to gun hunt deer. And I bow hunted rabbits and about everything I've done. I've done with a bow. I've always had a passion for archery. And uh, grew up shooting my first deer was the t- first challenge. And then after that, of course, like most people, I wanted to shoot as many as legally possible. Then I wanted to shoot a buck. Then the trophy bug hit me. I got to reading North American Whitetail Magazine and some other magazines in the 80s i think i think i started reading it as soon as it came on the market and and uh, I was just fascinated by the big deer people had and, and had in that magazine and and uh finally i figured it out and started killing some of your bucks and uh went from there 
So whenever you whenever you started and and specifically kind of talking about when you started really targeting mature deer, um, how long did it take you to to first off, how long did it take you to make that happen and start really putting the pieces together? And um, you you say like uh, uh, everybody gets lucky every once in a while, but it it, it turns into a different thing when you really start um, being able to consistently get on mature animals. At what age and at what point in your hunting, I guess, career, did you start realizing that that was something that you wanted to do? Well, killing deer, um, I, I was raised in the woods. I, I live further back, more in the woods than most people do when they go camping. Now, just very real area now live in a rustic home and I always have and uh, for entertainment at night we would uh, sit around and poke chickens on the roof and today we watch them pecking scratch through the cracks in our floor and we couldn't afford a TV I remember the first TV coming to my home we just got out in the woods and stayed in the woods and uh, I learned early on how wildlife Use terrain features to travel paths. And I was always fascinated with why paths were in the place they were, and that really, when you get down to it, is one of the big key for trophy hunting. And when I first started reading North American Whitetail Magazine, I started seeing the huge ducks that were being killed in the Midwest, particularly back then, most of them were killed in Illinois. And it just, I realized that in Tennessee, even the monster ducks that most people were killed are not what I consider a trophy anymore because of the uh, 180 and 190 and 200 steer I saw in North America. So uh, I got to call in covered hunting areas up in 87. I got to call in a lot of covered hunting areas up in Illinois trying to talk to managers, pinpoint places that I might go. Well, when you pay for mountains back in the travel with, I draw out the directions on a mountain. Took off the first year and hunted some public ground. I had an opportunity to shoot a big deer, but it got away from me. And then the second year, I went to Salom Springs State Park and killed a really big non hit that got a lot of notoriety. And a gentleman wrote an article for North American Watchdog Magazine about that deer. It came out at night, and that was the first published article I ever had and then from then to about 2000 I killed a few respectable deer for Tennessee uh, traveled a few times to the Midwest but I didn't have the finances to travel much and I've always worked one and a lot of times two jobs and finally in 2000 I went back to another public area the eastern part of the state I killed a, a giant 180 it's basically eight points scored in the 180s. His main time runs from 12 and a half to 15 inches, 15 and a quarter, actually. Oof, and I, wrote the, I never did like the story uh, that was written about the first deer, so I wrote that story myself. <laughs> and when I wrote that, I, Gordon Whitakin of North American Whitetail Magazine asked me to start writing how-to stories because inside the story I injected quite a bit of how-to information. And then a lot of other publications followed and asked me to start writing. So I wrote North American Whitetail Deer and several other publications, which 
it's pretty amazing. It, I was pretty ignorant in school. It took me eight classes of English to get out of high school. I had to take summer school every year. I just it was just awful, man. I'm still not very good. I still hardly spell my last name, but I tell I tell a story about running in after I wrote my first book. North American White Claw Magazine eventually asked me to write a book. It's the only hunting book they've ever published. And I wrote it. Bow hunt trophies, white tails. I run into one of my English teachers. Of course, she was quite elderly after I wrote that book. And uh, we got to talking about school and my problems in English. And I told her I wanted to tell her something that I had written a book. She got all excited and wanted to know how many pages it was, what the subject was, how long it took me. And as we talked, I realized she thought I said I had read a book. She <laughs> <laughs> was pretty, pretty excited about that. But that started in 2000. That, that one big year started my writing career, and I started writing articles regular and ended up writing a book for North American Whitetail. And then I co authored a few, and then I wrote a, a second book, A Passionate Quest for Phantoms of the Forest, which is no longer in print. I, I do have a volume two of that uh, on my computer. I hope next year we'll to get it printed. But I'm excited about it. It's probably about a, it's 100 pages from the first one. That's, that's really cool. Drew actually purchased the book, as he mentioned, um, the bow hunting, bow hunting trophy whitetails. Um, yes. And uh, Drew, why don't you tell us your first impressions of this book? I, I know it's, it's, it's intimidating for me as a host just hosting this podcast after, you know, learning and talking, uh, with Bobby for, you know, mm -hmm. a couple of conversations. It's intimidating for me. I'm like, man, how are we going to possibly do this, do this guy justice? Like he is, he's just an absolutely incredible guest to have. <clears throat> um, what are your first impressions of, of the book? And I, I guess just to, um, even encourage readers to go, uh, or listeners to go and, and buy this book for themselves. Yeah, um, my first impression of it is when you you see it, it's, it's got a big buck there there on the front cover, and um, you open it up and you're you're thinking you're going to jump right into um, uh, you know uh, Mr. Bobby sitting in the stand, and you don't. You actually jump into um, knowing your equipment, which I which I really appreciated because um, I know for a large portion of my at least my archery life, um, it was just hey, let me go shoot a couple days for season. And then let me hop in a stand and then I'll be good to go. And, and so, um, so you, you actually jump in and you start, um, 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 reading about how to execute your shot, um, uh, learn, learning your equipment, um, really kind of archery in and out. And I really appreciate that. And then you jump into, um, right after that, you, you jump into, I'm, I'm halfway through it. And so you, you, you jump into, um, a heartbreaking story, Mr. Bobby, as, as I was reading the story of, of, that that big deer that that you miss man i was it's uh, i i get i get upset when i miss a hundred inch buck i couldn't imagine a, a 190 200 inch monster you know um and and so it's it's a great read it's straightforward it's 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 my type of reading um anybody can benefit from this book whether you've been hunting one day or whether you've been hunting 50 years you can benefit from it i encourage anybody to go pick it up that's really cool. That's that's amazing. And so, um, using that as kind of a segue into the next portion of of what I kind of want to talk about to get to know Bobby a little bit before we get into 
the uh, the meat and potatoes, I guess, of the of the podcast. Because guys, listening to this, I promise you, there are meat and potatoes in this podcast. And if you um, don't like meat and potatoes, then in, in, insert whatever it is that you like, because this is a good. I'm telling you, it's going to be a solid episode. But I wanted to ask you about this, Bobby. I know a big part of what you do. Um, and a big part of your accomplishments even has been in the archery world. Can you talk about that for just a second? Oh, yeah, I, uh, I've always shot competition on the state level, uh, since I was young and got into 3d archery a little bit with a compound, uh, but uh, about five Five and a half years ago, I decided to get back into traditional archery. I, I stuck with it a while, not as long as Gene and Barry Wins and Roger Rotter. They're all friends of mine, and and we all shot, continued to hunt with traditional even after compounds came out. Uh, most of us started shooting compound for a little while and went back to traditional. Then I started shooting compounds more. Uh, and then about five and a half, six years ago, I got into national and world level on traditional archery, shooting a recurve in the traditional RU class. That's a recurve with fingers, of course, and, and no sight. And I've done that now for, well, I just had a competition this past week and actually the traditional world championship in Clarksville, Tennessee. But I've done that for a few years now, and, and I really enjoy it. Uh, I took about a year and a half break i got uh, rocky mountain spotted tick fever and it messed with my eyes some and uh, uh some other things and i just uh took a little break from it but uh, this past weekend's the first tournament in uh, over a year but i really enjoyed it and how did you do in the tournament this weekend i, I placed first in my place <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, you you mentioned something too that maybe there were some records or something that happened during that uh during this tournament? Well, yeah, there, there was. I went back and checked. That's the highest score uh, shot in my class by 22 points. But, you know, there's some there's some real good shooters out there now. And, and, and uh, there's some that's hard to compete again right now. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> so cool. Consider all the- that's so cool. And now how many, how many of, uh, how many, archery competitions have you have you actually won since you started doing it i think that's my sixth world championship and i've won 18 national championships so far wow man that's incredible that's really cool that's awesome i struggle just to win a game of words with friends like i I can imagine (laughs) i can't imagine winning that that's that. I would struggle I would struggle at that or scramble either one. <laughs> Listen, God made some of us better at some things than others, you know, and he just made you a good deer hunter and a good archer. That's okay. That's yep. fine. That's I think that's good idea. I do enjoy things. That's so cool. So so speaking of that, when did you start um when did you start doing the traditional archery thing? You may have already mentioned it. I may have missed it. When did you start doing that as far as hunting with traditional archery equipment? Oh, I I still hunt with it occasionally. It's it's according to the setup. I, back in 2000, 
uh, I missed a big deer that your partner there mentioned. And it was a world class deer, probably a new world record typical. It was in Iowa. Oh. And I missed him with a recurve, and uh, up until that point, I'd hunted most, done most of my hunting with a recurve. And I missed him, and, and I put it down for a while and started shooting compounds. I, listen, it's it's too hard and too expensive to spend years hunting with deer and, and traveling out of state and everything, and, and to have a deer like that in bow range, and you can take a compound and, and shoot his heart out and, and with a recurve. Uh, the recurve of not maybe not be able to i couldn't accomplish what i was doing now back then i was i wasn't at the level i am now with a recurve and neither was the industry back then we we would cut the arrows off at the back of our bow and we would shoot split fingers and those two things uh is why i missed that big deer i shoot a what you call gap shoot some people might refer to it as split vision but I look at the gap, the distance between the tip of my arrow and the subject I want to hit, the target. And that big deer was on the trail on the funnel I intended for him to be and was coming down, and I would have killed him. He was probably 20 yards away. He was a six for six. This U4 probably nine or 10 inches long. Pure typical. His rack was big. He actually looked. One of them odd things that the rack looks closer to you than the deer. It don't look like it belongs to the deer. It's amazing <laughs> mainframe deer. But if he'd have stayed on that trail, I'd have got him. But there were some rubs that had been made the night before right under my tree, and I seen them when I climbed up. They were small, but for some reason, he wanted to come over and smell them rubs, and he ended up five yards from me. And because I had to, I didn't have full-length arrows, and I shot split fingers, I don't know if you understand this or not, but to get low enough to hit him at five yards with my arrow tail i lost my arrow on my peripheral vision and i knew i had no idea where it would end up uh, so my point on with the arrow cut off the back of my bow and split fingers my point on was probably 30 or 35 yards and anywhere inside that up probably 20 my arrow would have been close enough to the intended mark i could have seen it but when he got mm. close i knocked my arrow down so far that i lost my arrow and that's basically that's basically why I didn't kill that deer, and I put for many years. But now we shoot most most archers shoot three fingers under, and we use full length full length arrows. So at any distance, our arrow does not leave our peripheral vision, and it helps in the aim process. Mm. I hope I haven't made that too confusing. No, no, no. You no. just made my stomach hurt I, for you. <laughs> that that's rough, man. I, I feel you. I still bow hunt. It's according. I, I I bow hunt with recurve some and a, and a compound some. And it's if the setup's not if I can't funnel the deer quite as tight as I want, then I will hunt with my compound. Like I said, it's it's still legal and it's a still a good sport. And to kill a 180 inch deer with a compound still quite an accomplishment. Uh, generally, I know right where the deer is. I don't I don't bet on luck. I'm Bow hunt's a game of chance, but it's but I figured that I figured that out. It's no no longer a mystery to me, and I know where generally where the deer I want to be shooting will be standing when I kill it. So I set up appropriately, but sometimes there's not a tree or the terrain won't get me won't let me get quite as close as I would want with a recurve. I, I try to be ethical about it, and if the shot's pushed out there beyond 20 yards, a lot of times I'll use my compound. 
Yeah. Uh, anytime I shoot a deer that I'm not after, or anytime I shoot a deer it's not standing where I thought he'd be standing, it's just I count it as a luck deer to me, but that hardly ever happens. There was a deer I killed named Rattlesnake that was featured in North American Whitetail Magazine. And when the deer was three and a half years old, I told my son, Clay, I told him where the deer would be standing when I killed him a few years later when he got mature and got to the point I wanted him. And and uh, I, within six feet of where I told, where I pointed to the drown, the deer was standing when I killed him four years later when he was seven and a half years old. <laughs> that, Mr. Bobby, that is... That's in. That's crazy. That, that's well, awesome. That's awesome. That is so it, cool. When you figure out when you when you figure it out, you know it's it's not it's not that big of a mystery no more. You know, it's, man. That's oh man. That that that's so cool. That's I really just, neat. I wish I could call you. you. You do everything you can to put the odds in your favor, and if it don't happen then there's nothing more you can do to control it. And most of the time, most of the time, yeah. though, it will happen you get to, if, you, if you get to hunt enough. So it, it's <laughs> just a game of chance. And you finally learn. A lot of people talk about getting inside a whitetail or understanding what they're thinking or what they're going to do next. Uh, a dog can't understand a cat and a, a, a man can't understand a, a whitetail. We're, we're, we're different creatures with different minds and different mindsets and different thinkings completely. But there's things you can do to, it's just like a it's a game of chance if you're a poker player a professional poker player it's no longer a mystery to them they understand everything but whether they win or not is part of the game is controlling their opponent which they cannot do even though they put everything in their odds most of the time they will and if it's not another professional they're playing again they don't understand how to play the game then they will win every time huh that's i've never heard it put like that. i love that but let, yeah. let, let's. Just, I'm going to take it even a step further. You said uh, a cat uh, or a dog don't understand a cat, and a man don't understand a deer. I, just take it even a step further. A man doesn't even understand a woman. So <laughs> <laughs> there, there's no way we could possibly completely understand what a deer is going to do. And what you said about it being, you know, you can't control your opponent. Um, you can just do everything that you possibly can to put yourself and to play the game as well as you can. And so. Um, now I want to get into the meat and potatoes. I want you to talk to us, Bobby, about how you, how you put yourself in those positions where you feel like you are doing everything that you can to make those things happen. Cause the things that you're talking about right now are, I mean, it, it's next level stuff. Honestly, Drew, I know you probably agree. Like, like you're sitting here talking about 180 inch deer. I'm like, what about like 115 or 120? Like that's that's the level that a lot of guys are on right now where we're not even thinking yeah. about, you know, these true giants. And so Bobby, if you could, I'm going to I'm just going to let you take it away and you tell yeah. us how you how how are you doing this? How are you able to understand deer on this level? Well, let let me back up just a little and and when I talk about the game of chance, let me elaborate a little more, then I will get into the meat and potatoes of it. Uh, you got two professional poker players. I've never used, used this analogy before. As a matter of fact, I just, just now thought about it. But <laughs> if you've got two professional poker players, and they're both professional, they understand the game completely, and then it's just you and your opponent, and, and your move again, his. 
the same way with white-tailed deer. And I'll tell you why we don't, even those that do truly understand. I, I believe 90% of the mature bucks is legally killed by 5% of the white-tailed hunters that finally understand what's important. And they may not organize their thoughts into words like in a book like I have, but they understand it. But even it's a game of chance anyway. The best I can do, I normally kill the buck I want. He's normally standing where I think he will be, and I kill him generally when I think I will. But here's one reason that that does not happen occasionally with me and and some other deer hunters that are probably a lot better than I. Uh, the buck, mature bucks, and a lot of a lot of deer hunters don't even understand this. A lot of professionals don't. I believe they have two home ranges, and you may put the odds in your chance in your favor 100% by hunting the one tree that he walks by more than any other tree in the woods when he is at home. But if he spends his rut at another home range, I don't care how skilled you are. I don't care how you are in the correct place 100% of the time and spend a month there, you will not kill him. And a lot of hunters begin to question their skill or begin to doubt their self maybe after a week or a few days and they'll get down and start walking and looking and scouting more when they were in the one tree that he walks by more than any other when he is at home. I wrote about this pretty extensively in North American Whitefield Magazine. Me and Gene, Lindsay, Barry, and Roger Rother have knocked this around quite a bit and they agree 100% with my assessment when I wrote the articles. I believe a lot of bucks have two home ranges. So if you're set up high and you're set up on that deer and you're not seeing him and used to, all we had to go by was sign. When I first started this stuff, I didn't have trail cameras, but when his sign dried up and, and his track was not showing up in his stripes and, and the sign dried up, I knew that deer was gone. I just, I just had a feeling then something happened later on that confirmed that, but understand that you've got to give your stand time to work. Uh, I believe a deer when they're born, of course, most people know when they get a year, year and a half old, they, they, they get cast out by the old doe, they dissipate, and they go find their own home range. They may travel two miles, normally five or six miles, and set up a, a new a new home range, a new area. And I honestly believe that when those deer get four and a half or five and a half years old, uh, they will start moving back to their birth home range it's already imprinted in their mind they followed their mother there along in that area for a year or more and it's already imprinted in their mind and i believe they go back and they start spending a part of their time back and forth between the two home ranges and and radio tracking here in the last year or two i read some reports that show that same thing and it may be three or four miles apart so Two things I want to make, two observations I will make. If you're set up tight and you feel like you're tight and in the right location, it's a game of chance. But if if you put everything in your odds on that deer and you know you have, have confidence in that stand and keep after him. He, when he returns, if you're set up correctly, he will come to your stand. But he may not be there at the time. You may hear of him getting killed four or five miles away, as some people do, a deer they was hunting. And that's what happened. He got killed in, in the other home range. Another observation is, I believe the, 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 the old old cats, they're falling out. It's by nature, they say it's inbreeding. I'm still up in the air about some of that. But if it, 
if that's the case, and it looks to me like it is, if you shoot the doe, say you've got a doe comes under you with two button bucks, and it's legal, and you harvest her, both of those button bucks will probably remain in that home range all their life, and they will be much easier to kill. I, I've hunted several bucks. Most of them had two home ranges. One particular I know did not, and that year I harvested those pretty heavily, and I think I had killed that button buck's mother when it was in the fall when it was young. So that's two observations on that. Do you fellas got any comments or questions about that for us? My mind's blown, man. That's all, like, that is so good. Like, never thought of that. Never thought of it. Yeah, no. But it, it makes it makes total sense. Oh, my goodness. So that that is something, especially for guys who are um, – who are hunting some private land, even like when you can really start to take, start keeping tabs on deer. Um, I, I have often seen where I've killed a buck or killed a doe that had fawns where you, you know, if you kill the doe, the fawns will stick around there. Um, and if you can start really keeping tabs on those deer, say you do harvest a doe with fawns, you start keeping tabs on those deer. Um, that, that makes total sense to me. I would be interested to know, um, I would be interested to know, I know you said that's an observation and you had seen some stuff that had recently come out that kind of agreed with that observation. I would be interested to know more about that. I think I, I'm, yeah. I, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't even know where to go from there. Like that is so yeah. good. Mr. Bobby. Um, what, what, one of the questions that, that I had was when you're, when you're talking about the two ranges, are you talking about one being a rut range or are you talking about a deer having a, birth range where they were born at and then they have their adult range or or is there a rut range too does that make sense well that's what forms the two home ranges the birth range where it was born and spent spent a year or so of its life and then it got it dissipated got cast out Mm -hmm. and and then it went to what you could call an adult home range i call it a secondary home range Mm-hmm. And then if that buck gets mature and that old doe that cast it out is no longer a issue and and maybe maybe because of a lack of does or even hunting pressure or maybe a more mature buck moves in and that deer will take off and he'll he'll go he'll go back to the home range that he knows where it was imprinted in his mind. He usually don't do that right off. I think he's three or four years old before he does that. Okay. And then he will start moving back and forth. He can move back and forth because of availability of does or hunting pressure. Okay. All right. He's got a place to go when that happens. As a matter of fact, uh, two or three instances I've heard of friends of mine killing bucks and them traveling in a straight line, three or four miles before they die in the straight line, and then huh. maybe shot in the distance or something, bed down and die. And I believe they went to their other home range because that shot spooked them and they died in they didn't circle. They didn't. They didn't travel around in their home range, which is generally a three quarter of a mile by mile. They went straight to the other home range, and and they died there. And I know you all read or heard stories about a big buck with a certain rat, rat characteristic being killed mm-hmm. three or four miles, five miles from where the guy knowed he had seen him or got his picture. That deer. That deer was either killed on the travel corridor between the home ranges or in in its secondary home range, and and. I've seen them. I've seen them spend the summer in one home range and go for the rut in the other one. Probably the availability of does does that, or hunting pressure, and and vice versa. But I also had one buck that I had a friend of mine that could keep tabs on him for me. He's seen him in the clear cut a lot, about 
four miles from my house. And that deer moved back and forth. The longest he was gone was about a month in the winter. But he would move sometimes within a couple of nights, he would move back and forth. So it depends a lot on things that we can't understand, not being that particular deer. And maybe another deer couldn't even understand what was causing that. Yeah. <laughs> that is good. That's good stuff. So I, I really don't have, like, that kind of just blows. Meat and potatoes, man. Yeah, that let's, just let's kind of blows my it. mind. Let's just keep going, man. So you, you talked about. Well, let me. Go ahead. Well, let me say the most difficult things for most inspiring bow hunters is to understand what's important and what's not important. Most, most do not. Most are wasting all their time uh, dealing with, worrying about, working on, and buying things that will not, will not help them one, one bit. And that's why they end up at the end of the year frustrated like they have so many, so many other years. There are things that we do not know in life, and there are things that we realize we do not know. The difference in these two things is really profound and broad in scope, and they really affect all the avenues of our life. Over the years, it's become apparent that the most difficult thing for inspiring trophy bow hunters is to understand what is significant to their success and what is not. Uh, a lot of hunters exert tremendous energy working working on stuff, like I said, that really, really don't matter. Uh, let me uh, give you an analogy. I, I coach a lot of archery, and I shoot in a lot of different ranges. And in nearly every range I attend, there's individuals in nearly every range. They, they'll, shoot, they'll shoot arrows for a little while, and then they'll walk over to the paper rack and, and, uh, boat, and paper tune their bow. They'll shoot holes through paper. And then they'll start turning screws on their bow. They will repeat this over and over during the day if you watch them. And this they do in an attempt to improve their shooting by adjusting their bow. And it's obvious to me from watching most of these individuals that they have no idea how to execute a proper shot. Making adjustments on their bow or adding new gimmicks to their bow or buying a, a better, more advanced bow will not help them one iota. It won't, it won't help them a bit. And most of these individuals, really, they, they don't honestly know why their skill level is not where they would like it to be. The first thing they would have to do to improve their skill is learn to execute the shot. And this takes time and effort. And it also takes knowledge of, of, of what they're missing. Uh, most, same way most trophy deer hunters, they're, they're, I say they're majoring in minor things and minor in, in major things. There is minor things that will, once you have the major things, once you learn to execute a little adjustment or, or adding something different might help. But until you know how to execute shot or until you know how to kill a trophy buck, then all of these little gimmicks people throw in the mix is nothing but cosmetic is the way I look at it. They're really missing the big picture. So most of the questions I get about how to kill a big buck would be like a person uh, who wanted to take up archery. Let's say hired me for an archery coach, and before their first lesson, they decided to go out and, and, and buy some equipment. And then the first question when on the phone to me was, 
what color of fletching should I put on my arrows? Well, that's not really important in the big scheme of how to execute a shot. You know, I can take a I can take the cheapest bow on the market and, and arrows with no fletching and show you how to execute. I can really show you how to execute with a, a rubber stretch band with a, with a, without a bow. <laughs> I often life it reminds me years ago. There's a wonderful show I guess you guys seen it some called married with children i played <laughs> probably the greatest show, the greatest show ever been on tv i remember one time al told peggy not long after computers come out that they was going to get a computer and 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 his big red-headed wife got all excited and said oh al that is so wonderful what color <laughs> it's, it, it's 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 about the same thing <laughs> so, yeah and I've, uh, no, I've found that to be true no. with a lot of deer hunting stuff, man. Like a, a lot of people are asking so many questions and they're wondering why they're not getting on deer. They're wondering why they're not being able to even see deer, let alone execute the shot. But that's the same people who are constantly learning, who are constantly not learning how to actually hunt and more concerned with the gear that they're using for sure. Right, they're they're not concerned about the only one thing that will help them. Uh, most bow hunters that most bow hunters interested in shooting buck are chasing rabbits down empty rabbit holes, and it's because they have no idea what an occupied rabbit hole looks like. This is really it's in a big part to the commercialization of deer hunting. A lot of individuals get their information about how to kill a trophy buck from riders or from TV or Internet stars. And I say stars in parentheses, whose livelihood depends on promoting techniques that are supported by products. And uh, the sad truth is most of these products are gimmicks. They, they don't have one bit of firing on, on your ability to kill mature bucks. What most individuals and even so-called experts are missing is the one important thing that will help you in any endeavor, and that's knowledge. There is only one way to improve your skill or to develop a skill in the first place, whether it's bow hunting trophy bucks or in any other endeavor, and that is to acquire new, more advanced knowledge than you already possess. This new knowledge must then be developed into skill once it's acquired and knowledge can only be turned into skill one way and that is through effort i've often said and sometimes me and others coaches put this on a bulletin board uh, without effort something awful takes person takes place in a person's life nothing and so you have to first acquire the knowledge and then you cannot be lazy with that knowledge or it is useless. You have to develop that knowledge into skill. But the bad thing, uh, thing you got to realize is it's hard to promote and sell knowledge, which is the only thing that really increases your success. Most, most of the personalities who promote gimmicks are, are hunting on large private pieces of ground or, or they're that have unpressured deer are really you'd be surprised at the number of them that hunt in confinements in pens and uh, you can you can kill subtrophy deer 150 inch deer in, in pens very cheap now and a lot of the not all of them but a lot of the tv and internet personalities are doing this 
so can they they can showcase their product and it's just to make money for themselves but i think there's sort of this prostitution of, of hunting is that a lot of hunters are, are, don't understand what's important and what's not they think buying more game buying a bow buying different tree stands uh, will increase their chances of success uh, and they they'll get on the internet and they'll do this and then they'll get on the internet and 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 until late at night talk to other so-called trophy hunters about uh say what constitutes a staging area or or which side of the tree is best to hang your stand on and and so forth none of that amounts to a hill of beans really that's like a turning screws in the bow if you don't know how to execute the shot a, a bow tuning uh, is not going to help you one bit uh and at the end of the season they realize that once again they did not shoot a trophy just like uh in so many previous seasons and why is this the case they have really no idea why they didn't other than maybe they think they didn't spend enough money or buy the right, right product but yeah. that's not the case at all. Uh, they don't have a trophy in the, the the bottom line is they they never put a trophy on their wall that season because one never stepped in front of them they have everything in place. They know all the correct language and lingo, and they got the best bow, and they, they got, they're ready for a nice picture. But they've spent way too much time working on and studying things that don't mount the hill of beans. And if they ever do kill a once-in-a-lifetime buck, it will truly be that, a once-in-a-lifetime buck, because it will solely be by luck. If a person kills a mature buck by luck, it cannot be repeated. However, if he kill, if an individual shoots one on purpose, then he can do it again and again. That's why I said that probably five percent of the trophy hunters or ten percent kill ninety percent of the the big bucks because because we have figured it out. Uh, like I said before, bow hunting trophy whitetail is a game of chance. The good news is there is ways to put the chance in, in our favor and increase our odds. Ultimately, there's just one challenge in trophy hunting mature bucks the challenge is to find ways to increase your chances that a mature buck will walk within bow range of you during legal shooting hours now the shooting part's important you don't want that to happen too many times and you miss but the shooting part uh, to me is cosmetic because if you don't get the buck in front of you you, you can't kill it anyway and there's there's smaller things con- controlling your nerves and learning how to when to draw and all that, but that's all cosmetic because most people has got all that ready to go, but they, they just can't get, they just can't kill them because they can't get them there. Well, fellas, there's, there's three elements that over the years I have learned that there's only three things that really matter. All the TV shows and internet chat and books ever written on bow hunting trophy whitetail don't mount to nothing. It, these three elements are not adhered to the everything else is just it's just cosmetic now these elements don't have the fascination or the uh, intrigue maybe as certain things that you want to talk about like signpost rubs and uh, a lot of things about uh, the different scents deer puts in the scrape and the uh, a, lot, a lot of stuff that's intriguing biological stuff to know about a deer i guess but these three simple elements are truly all that matters and if you if you adhere to them then each one of them will in, 
increase your chances of success. And let me uh, let me outline them here. They're hunting during the rut. That's number one. Hunt a mature buck during the rut and not before the rut. And I will explain why. Number two is stand placement. There is one tree in the woods that your target buck or more mature bucks will walk past than any other tree. And it's your job to find that tree and it can be found. And I will mention a few things on that. And the next is persistence, which is the amount of time you stand, you're in that stand. And I will have to say that persistent, persistence is the most important of the three. And I'll cover a few points on that. These these three elements all accomplish the same thing. That is, they increase your odds, your chances that a mature buck or your target buck, whatever the situation may be, will walk by your stand within bow range. Let me show you how that is. Uh, if you're hunting outside the rut and you've got, let's say, uh, I'm just ad- I'm just thinking of something here off my head, but say that you've got a mature buck in your hunting area and you're hunting outside the rut. Say you're hunting October 1st, uh, October 20th. During that time, he might be on his feet and walk through your hunting property one time. So if you're there for those 20 days, he might walk through your hunting property one time. Now, if you're not set up under the right tree, he won't come by you during that time if you hunt half that time you'll be there chances are half that you'll be there when he is so that's one way now stand placement if you're hunting in a location where this buck walks through three quarters of his time say it's a tight funnel and there is three or four corridors or deer trails that are forced because of a ditch or a body of water forced to go around this particular spotting come under your stand then let's say four corridors then you increase your odds four times that that will happen that a mature buck will walk by you so if you're hunting during the rut you're going to increase it 20 times one day out of 20 if you're hunting in a tight funnel where four corridors come by you're going to increase it four times dramatically than you would otherwise and the next thing is persistence if you're only hunting one day out of the 20 compared to 20 days out of the 20, you have increased your chances again 20 times. So all three of these do the same exact thing. They increase your odds that a mature buck will walk in front of you. So I can elaborate a little bit on all three if you would like me to. Absolutely. Yes, please. The first of these key points that I mentioned is hunting during the rut, and I want to point out the significance of that. Let me start out by relating to you a conversation I had a few years back. I was experiencing some knee pain one October, two or three years ago, so I went to see my doctor who is supposed to know something about knees. And he had a female intern doctor working with him, and she's the one that come in there and seen me. And it was obvious from her accent, she was from somewhere up the East Coast. and. Uh, she said to me, we'll need to do x-rays on your knee, Bobby. Uh, I I hope you don't have to have surgery, but from an examination alone, I cannot be sure. And uh, I answered, well, if we, if we do have to have, if I do have to have surgery, I'd have to 
wait till after the rut. Well, in mind that it was already the first week of October. And she said, sure. And then she paused a minute and she looked at me over her glasses and asked, what is a rut? And I said, ma'am, that's the white-tailed deer breeding season. Oh, uh, of course, she said. She said, I should have known that. And then she got the fidg- fidgeting around there with paperwork and, and just fidgeting around it in a kind of a daze. And, and the question that was growing in her mind got the best of her. And she blurted out, and you're involved in that house, sir. <laughs> 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 so I now know for sure I am correct in my assumption that there is still some people who do not understand the significance of hunting during the rut. <laughs> and it's, she was one of them. Uh, let's let's define the term rut for for what I mean when I use it in in the terminology. I'm referring to a 25 day period of time during the late pre-rut and, and through the breeding season. This time frame I call the rut movement period, or I'll refer to it short as the rut. And as you probably realize when dealing with mammals that are short day breeders in temperate regions, the timing of this period will vary depending on your location. Uh, this rut movement play, period, I think y'all are in where y'all, Texas? Uh, Alabama. Alabama. Well, this, this rut movement period will take place at the same time basically every year where you live. Now, it may be more visible, the color of the temperature. Mm-hmm. The time and primes deal, but the cold temperatures is what I watch for when I decide to, when, to, when to take them a stand. But I'm not going to get off track too far here. Uh, and the reason that it... it it stays the same wherever you're at is is because the 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 environmental condition that primes deer to breed for the rut is photoperiodism which is the amount of daylight in a 24 hour period of time so it enters the pinnacle land and and primes the, the deer for the breeding season and this is through environment you can you can transplant a deer from my region to your region and uh, the first year or two he may they may come in rut and breed at the time that is normal for up here but over time because of environment of course uh, evolution not darwin's theory of evolution but the true sense of adaptivity to your environment because of that and them needing to adapt the fawn birth for the greatest time of survival it will be heat off photoperiodism that their makeup their biological makeup will learn when that is for best fawn survival now, where I live in southeastern Tennessee is just north of the 35th latitude. Uh, actually, just about the southern part of Tennessee upward is the 35th latitude, up to the Canadian border, say. And the timing of the rut all through the Midwest is about the same at this place. And, and, uh, Anywhere you anywhere you live and hunt, you need to find out where that is. And most avid hunters know when when the rut takes place for their location. But there's a period of about 25 days, and in my area through the Midwest up to Canada, it it begins about October 25th. 
now, if it's the other than the exception of one buck, which I will discuss later, October 25th is the date that I killed. I've only killed, starting at that date, I've only killed mature bucks from that date forward as far as being pulled by the rut. Now, there's a few exceptions to that that I will talk about. But only, I'll start hunting mature bucks if I've got a big buck pinpointing and a buck I want to shoot. I will start hunting him October 25th or later, depending on the temperature. Daylight temperature is more important than most people realize. If it's unseasonably warm, October 25th through the 1st of November, I will stay out of his core area. He will still be coming through. If I've got him pinpointed and got the tree pinpointed, he'll be coming through, but it will be at night. And if I get in there when he is still coming through at night, if it's unseasonably warm, I will educate him. It won't be no difference than me having him pinpointed, but starting to hunt him in the middle of October when he is nocturnal until the rut, which 90% of them are. So when I say October 25th forward is when I, the rut movement period, when I will hunt a mature buck, I am talking about only if the temperature is seasonable or below. If it's unseasonably warm, I still will not hunt them at that early date. Now I realize that there are a lot of hunters hunting in special situations. Uh, we see it on TV. They've got huge tracts of unpressured ground. They don't go into the woods at all and bother the deer. And those deer are not what I call natural deer that's been pursued by the human predator. Most places I hunt public ground or pressured private ground, like most individuals that's probably going to listen to this podcast. So that is the situation I'm governing their hunting toward because because most of us now i'm not saying a thing in the world about the people that's worked hard and uh, been able to buy and, and purchase these large pieces of ground or has unique situations hunt i'm i'm tickled to death for them and i'm happy for them but most of us just just don't have that situation available to us and as i said before a, a lot of people now are, are hunting shows are killing deer that's that's on in pens and and that, that particular pen may not have been pressured all year and they're feeding the deer in a certain place and you can kill them outside the rut in daylight hours and and every now and then we'll we'll find a buck that we can do that with just there is a few bucks that has a personality trait to move during daylight outside the rut in my area in everybody's area and on public ground I think talent, talent is a trait that's passed down from one generation to another. And after bucks learn the danger of the human predator in, in pressured areas, they, they start traveling at night, they pass that trait down. Well, there's a few bucks that just uh, is just governed by personality to move outside the rut uh, during daylight. Those bucks generally get killed by the time they're one and a half or two and a half and at the most three and a half years old. That is why it is really important if you can, and if you get an opportunity to hunt a ground, say public ground or private ground that's never been open before for hunting, if you can get in there and hunt that, you will have a gold mine because there will be a goodly number, a few bucks that has reached six and a half or seven and a half year olds that, that has not been hunted all their life, and they have that trait to move outside the rut during daylight. I've only killed one before October 25th. It was a big deer named Rattlesnake that uh, I killed at seven and a half years old. And from the time the deer was 
two and a half on, I noticed he had this trait. When he was four and a half years old, a week and a half or two weeks after he shed his velvet, I got plenty of pictures of him during daylight. Now, when they're still in velvet, all of them will be out in the feeding fields, no matter how old and how nocturnal. They'll be out in the fields. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about in July and August. A lot of them will be out in the fields during daylight, uh, during that time in food plots. But once they shed that velvet, they become an animal, a different creature. And then is when you have to be concerned about hunting them. And by then, most of them turn nocturnal until the rut. So I wanted to, I wanted to clarify uh, a few, a few things about that. Okay, so the general deer population—that's does and fawns and young bucks—are diurnal in their movements. And and the older the the bucks get, the more nocturnal they become outside the rut. Uh, when I say diurnal, they they they're they're dust movers. They move uh, at daylight in dust, and because we hunt those uh, before the rut and maybe kill harvest them for for meat, and because a lot of people start out hunting those, then they get used to seeing deer bed down, being diurnal, and then bedding down about nine or ten o'clock, and that preconditions us to think that deer even during the rut, don't move in the middle of the day. And it preconditions us to believe that any time during the year, during October, say we can kill a mature buck uh, outside the rut. And that's just, that's just not the case. Uh, in a moderately to heavy, heavy hunted area, uh, deer that do possess that trait are killed by the time they're three and a half. So very few of us, uh, just so happened that one deer I was, I was keeping tabs of, didn't make it to seven and a half, but, and that was, uh, some other people hunting the area, but he, through luck and just his, uh, intelligence and ability, he was able to elude them and get by, but I killed him on October 1st and he was seven and a half years old. So that's, that's every now and then it, that will happen, but you should never blind hunt a mature buck outside the rut. Never. Now, when I say blind hunt, I mean, if you, like me, get pictures of him or happen to see him a couple of times outside the rut, then you know that that deer is one of those rare creatures that has that trait, and you can try to figure him out and hunt him outside the rut. But I'm telling you, if he's not been pulled by that rut urge, he is an animal of extreme cunning, and he, it would be amazing if he don't detect your presence or or, or outwit you even when you get him coming in close, so... I just wanted to make that comment before I uh, press so much this issue of not hunting a mature buck until the rut. Even one that is occasionally moving during daylight outside the rut, in my opinion, your chances are much better if you wait to October 25th, uh, if it's seasonally cool or cooler and or later on. In my area, of course. That's, uh, but now you can apply that to where you hunt also. But the thing about the rut is, uh, because most mature bucks are nocturnal, it takes something out of the ordinary to get them on their feet during daylight hours. Other than forced movement, the only thing that I can think of and the the most uh, obvious thing is the rut. And during the rut, it is my belief that all mature bucks and older age class bucks will be on their feet at one point or another during the breeding season. Uh, that's just the nature of the game. Uh, the the urge to reprocreate is is so strong that that's that's just going to. And been my observation, 
that it's just always been the case. But let me say this, not only is it less productive, you're just kind of wasting your time hunting mature bucks before the rut movement. Hunting a mature buck during this time of season, say uh, once season opens down to October 25th, and that's north of the parallel, that's the 35th parallel line, it will destroy your chances to kill one. I believe this is one of the major reasons a lot of people do not kill a mature buck, and they absolutely have no idea why. They literally run that buck off before he's moving during daylight. They're setting up on big sign. Uh, and 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 they're hunting him. Uh, let me just, uh, let me illustrate how the average deer hunter hunts and, and why his action diminishes his chance of shooting a mature buck. Most bow hunters will start hunting on opening day, which is usually the last week of September or the first week of October. And he'll hunt every chance he gets early in the season because, you know, the anticipation's been building and he just, he's like all of us with this urge, he just, he just wants to go hunting. And a week or two into October, uh, the guy set up in a good place, he knows what he's doing, and large buck sign will start showing up around the hunter's stand or, or on his route to the stand. And these large rubs and straights will really get the hunter excited. He'll hunt even harder and he'll spend every free minute he has in the woods because he's wanting to kill this monster buck that's making the big sign. Well, after a few days of hunting and not seeing the big buck that's tearing the woods up, he'll begin to get frustrated. This is when the average deer hunter will usually start scouting again. He'll walk the woods out to make sure he's set up in the right location, and then he'll continue to hunt his previous stand, or maybe he'll hunt a, another stand on some more big sign two or three hundred yards down the same buck's travel corridor. The dip, typical deer hunter, i tell you what he'll also do, he'll also shoot a young buck or a doe or two because he's getting frustrated now. It's, say, the th third week of October, and, and he's not seeing the big buck that's tearing the woods up, and he's getting frustrated, so he don't, he don't want to go through the season without shooting something. He'll shoot a doe or two from eight or maybe a younger buck, and, of course, that'll require him dragging out of the woods and walking through the woods some more, and and uh, leaving more human scent in the woods. And a lot of times he'll even solicit the help of a friend or a hunting partner who may be hunting the same buck a quarter mile away to have him drag the deer he shot out. And by the third or fourth week of October, the hunter is really discouraged. Not only has he not seen that big buck and he knows he's in the area, uh, all deer sign. He's seeing fewer and fewer deer of any kind and, and fewer deer, deer sign of any kind. But I want to ask you, is it any wonder that this is the case? He has left enough scent in the area and disturbed the general deer population and disturbed the ground so much that the one-and-a-half-year-old deers are going to place. And at this time, the most deer hunters will get so discouraged enough they'll either quit hunting or, or quit hunting that spot and start hunting a new location. And they may have had a 180 inch buck pinpointed well i'm telling you fellas hunting in this manner the typical deer hunter has never killed a mature buck and and never will unless it's purely by luck and why is he not successful hunting in this manner it's because his target buck become aware that he was being stalked 
And he has literally educated that buck to the fact that you're after his hide and he has destroyed his chances of killing him. And there's many ways that hunting a buck too early like this, a mature buck that's nocturnal, uh, there's many ways that 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 you can that you can destroy your chances. And let me let me go about five reasons here, and we can learn something from each one of these. Well, of course, during the night, that mature bucks keep a close check on what's taking place in the different family groups of does in their home range. So they're traveling around at night, and they're they're making big rubs and scrapes. Uh, during these locations and on the travel door corridors between them uh, during this time. And in either or both of these locations is where the typical deer hunter encounters this sign and, and, he, and he's hunting and he's getting excited about it. And during the night, the, the old buck that was tying the woods up is coming through and every few nights he passes through that area and he encounters fresh human scent because the hunter was coming in and out of a stand and, and, and walking around scouting some more. And, and every few nights he encounters fresh human scent. And after two or three such encounters, you, we don't have to go past number one of my five points, but after two or three such encounters, that mature buck has wrote that off as a dangerous situation because he knows the human predator is after him. No respectable buck would keep going into that area after after encountering fresh human scent two or three times. Now, I'm going to chase a rabbit hole, just a sideline here, to point this out even more. Every now and then, I'll have a situation where I have to scout during the season. It, it just seems to arise every year, but most of my scouting is done the year or three years before, and I'm keeping tabs on the buck and I, I, the year before. But every now and then, I'll be asked to hunt a new area, a new place to open up, and I'll have a situation to scout in the season or very close to season. And, fellas, I will not go in but one time. When I go into an area that local deer herd and the mature bucks, if there's any in that particular location, they'll ease out. They'll accept that. They encounter people all the time, squirrel hunters, uh coon hunters, mushroom hunters, uh, hikers, they'll accept that. They'll move out. They'll come in back at night after you leave, and they'll smell around and track you around and figure out where you spent most of the time and try to figure out what was going on there. And, of course, they, they don't think like us, so they don't, they don't really know, but they're, they're very aware that it could be a predator, human predator. Well, a lot of people will go in and scout like that, and they'll find good sign and, and, and maybe want to walk it some more the next day or, or at least go back they're tired it's late and they'll go out that night and and then they'll come back the next day and hang their stands well the next time they go in the next day they push those deer back out again and 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 now that's 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 too much that's alarming that's no longer a squirrel hunter walking through or a hiker or a coon hunter when they push them out a second day two days in a row or maybe the next day or or two days apart when the same and they come back in and it's the same human sin in the same location that is alarming to a deer, very alarming to a mature buck. They don't get to be mature by being stupid, and most people underestimate them and don't know what it takes to kill one. That's why they don't. But when I go in and scout a new area, if it's close to season or during the season, I will, I will leave no rock unturned. I will walk at daylight to dark, and I don't care if it's after dark. I will go out and get my stands and bring them back in. I do not want to push the deer out two days in a row or the next day, and I don't want to disturb them, but one time. They will accept that, but no more. Okay, 
having having said that, let me let me move forward to the second reason, the second way a mature buck gets tipped off uh, that you're that you're hunting a certain area because you're hunting too early. You're not waiting until he actually is moving during daylight and sneaking there and set up, and it's the first time or second time that stand's been hunted. You're you're, you're hunting him constantly too early because you found the big sign and you got excited about, it, but the buck's nocturnal. Uh, that buck may be tipped off by an old doe that has become aware of the location of your stand. I know you guys have, and I have many times watched uh, a doe come down the corridor I'm hunting and become aware of my presence. Maybe I moved at the wrong time or the wind shifted or something, and, and she may have five or six does behind her, and she will communicate through body language she not blowing and running yet, but she'll do something that I, maybe I don't even notice, but she'll communicate to the deer behind her that there's danger up her head. There's a human predator and they'll all stop. And then one of them start stomping their foot, foot and, and but no, before you know it, they blow and run off. Uh, it's my opinion. And I think I've seen stuff that's indicated this, that, that old old that's found you in that stand don't only tip deer off right then to your presence, particularly if she has done it a couple of days in a row or, or a couple of days in a week. It's my opinion that anytime during the nightly visit she's in that area or that location and she's with other deer, she will let them know through body language that, hey, we're not going through this corridor. We're not going down this patch of woods because there's danger in there. And before you know it, every every doe and every deer in the woods become aware of your presence, even and, and even the old mature bucks that was in the area at the time. Well, that's that's the second way that a mature buck can be tipped off because you've hunted him too early in the year. And the third way is by using his nose, a mature buck will will discover that the deer traveling through a corridor reaches a certain point and he makes a deer they make a detour which is not normal they did this because of course because uh, they were spooked by you or or by the airborne scent they smelt you or by the scent you left behind walking in and out they've they've learned that a human predators in them woods and that's why you're seeing fewer deer well, this old buck is coming down the same corridor, and he knows the family group of does there just like he comes through there all the time at night, every few days. And he knows them just like you know your own family's movements. And if your family all of a sudden started going to a certain place, you wouldn't know it. Well, through his nose, he's following the family group of does in, in a normal pattern, and all of a sudden he's walking further, and there's no doe scent. He smells the ground. No deer scent at all. He's, he circles, smells a wider area, and no deer scent at all. I believe that buck knows and has learned through experience that those does have deterred their normal mo- movement and are moving around a certain place because there's danger there. So he'll start avoiding the area, of course, uh, just like he would if he found two or three different times of your scent. He's going to stop avoiding that area. So that's that's another way. After two or three nights of detecting uh, danger for whatever reason, uh, he's going to stay away. And, and he just—he's—he's he's a survival. He's a—he's an ultimate survival machine. He just—he's just not going to make a stupid mistake out like that after 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 such encounters. Uh, he may relocate to a faraway place, but for sure he's going to avoid going through that location. And the fourth way a mature buck may be tipped off. Uh, 
that you're hunting a certain area that he normally likes to go through. It's on his travel corridor. It's it's a good place to kill him, but you're hunting him too early in the year. Is that he may be bed in the half mile or he may be bedded three quarters of a mile away from a certain ridge or a funnel you're hunting. And as your hunt continues, you occasionally spook deer, does, young bucks, whatever, going to and fro of your stand and of course, those deer leave quickly, and they give that familiar warning. They blow, and and then that's just like a hunter sitting half a mile on somebody else hunting, and you two or three days in a row you hear deer blowing on a certain ridge. Well, you know somebody's hunting up there, hmm. and and the young bucks and does become aware of you present. Maybe they catch you in a tree stand and blow. Maybe they they blow when you're going in and out. Well, the the mature buck that's bedded in here into that location, I'm I'm telling you. He is going to write that off. I'm no longer going through there. He's left sign there. He's it's a good place for him, but he is he's no longer going through there. I'm hoping through these situations you can begin to see why many uh, of y'all and my reader, my listeners are failing in their attempt to kill a mature buck. Uh, they're hunting them too early in the season. They 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 get excited and they do not use restraint well the fifth reason uh a lot of people don't they they tip off my tear buck and, and don't kill him by hunting. the fifth reason hunting too early in the season can cost you that is even if your target buck does not suspect danger he will not hang around a place long in the fall where there is no or few does because the Hunter has spooked them all out of that location. You can't hunt a place a week in a row unless you use extreme stealth. And there's very few hunters that can hunt a place a week in a row without the family group of does becoming aware of your presence. That's why it's much easier to hunt a place that has very few does because once they do become aware of your presence, as I stated before, there's many ways that they can tip off a mature buck will also become aware of. But anyway, once the family group of does become aware of your presence, and they vacate the location, that buck will come through at night. Even if he don't go right through your corridor and detect your scent or where you've been or understand some of the other reasons, that mature buck will come through at night and he's feeding on acres and he's walking around where he knows the rut's coming up and he's trying to keep a check of this family group of does and find out where they're located most often and where they're using. And he he don't find any. If you're looking for a date and go to a bar or, or event, where there are none or very few of the opposite sex, you're not going to stay there long. <laughs> and you probably won't return at least for a good while. So you'll probably keep <laughs> scouting around until you find a place where there is a lot of the opposite sex uh, attended. Yeah. So if you overhunt a place, and if, you, if you're in there before the, before the buck is, is pulled into daylight by the rut movement period, and you're spooking the local does and they're no longer going on that ridge or going through that area and a mature buck comes through at night a time or two and there's no does, he's going to write that off as just uh, low chances of success of what he's trying to achieve. And, 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 and when he finds an area over here where they move to, that's they got a lot more does, then that's where he's going to spend his time. Well, as you can see from, I hope what I've said, uh, it makes matters, to begin with, it 
decreases your chances of mud spits. You just as well in a heavily hunted or modern hunted area or public ground, it decreases your chance so much that it's just about not worth it anyway, hunting a mature buck outside the rut. And not only does it decrease your chances of success, the damage you will do would literally in any one of these five ways, run that mature buck off or make him look for places elsewhere to go. So I hope this point of hunting the rut, number one, and, and why it's so important to stay out of the woods until the rut movement pulls him. I hope I have been able to point that out to you and, and your listeners, fellas. Yeah, it, that's absolutely like so much detail in that. I did have, I did have a couple of questions and I'll ask them all together because they're kind of related. Um, but number one, could you tell me what your definition age-wise is of a mature buck? And also with that, can you also tell me like, um, is there any scenario outside of weather where you will even be in the woods before that time period? I know you said that the, the weather largely affects, um, or that the cold weather largely, largely affects, um, that October 25th date, do you just not hunt period or do you go out and maybe try to get lucky on some spots that maybe you know, you don't have a buck targeted? Um, so yeah, age for mature buck. And is there a scenario where you do hunt early season? Well, getting lucky, hunting a mature buck early in the season, hoping to get lucky in a buck maybe I hadn't targeted or just hoping to get lucky on a mature buck is 100% out of the question because of the five reasons I have just brought up. Yeah. All you're going to do is educate him. If you have him up on some sign and just think, well, I don't know this particular deer, and since it ain't over there where I want to hunt another one, I'm going to go ahead and give him a try. Well, that's, that's a major mistake, just as much as it would be if it was the, the buck you had targeted. I hunt outside the rut on edge of fields and stuff in a particular place outside of away from where I want to hunt a mature buck just to kill those and and enjoy hunting and shoot those for me. Of course, I, I do that. And as far as buck age, I try not to shoot a buck until he's five and a half. But now I know the bucks I'm hunting. That's what I'm kind of known for in my articles and stuff is, is targeting a particular buck. And you'd be amazed at the bucks I have watched grow up through the years that become five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half in Tennessee and never reach trophy status for me, uh, 150. Uh, deer in 116 sometimes uh, in Tennessee the average four and a half or five and a half year old eight point would not get out of the low 140s and a 10 point even out of the 150s it takes an exceptional buck and I have watched a literally a ton of deer grow to trophies age and never develop into what I wanted to shoot I, very few bucks in Tennessee that I've followed and watched grow up did I kill? And once they get five and a half, if they're not what I want, I, I move on looking at something else and maybe watching two or three other bucks. So five and a half for me. Now, a lot of people will go ahead and shoot a five and a half year old knowing he's a five and a half year old, but I'm, I'm just fascinated by a lot of horn. And if he's in the one forties, I'm just, uh, I'll just, I'll put my efforts elsewhere. Uh, a lot of people caught three and a half year olds mature because that's all they can kill. A lot of the mature bucks that you see killed on to TV that are call bucks are actually two and a half year old, sometimes one and a half or sometimes three and a half. Uh, they just have to, you know, make shows and promote products. So they'll say that that's a, that's an old buck. that's just a call buck. And he really ain't old enough to be mature and have a, have a good racks. Usually the case. 
I love shooting six and a half and seven and a half year old bucks, but sometimes I'll shoot them at five and a half, but hardly ever, hardly ever before that. Okay. And, and do you, when you, when you go out and you target, uh, specific bucks and, and you're obviously planning to kill them during the rut or during that time, time period, what would you say is like an average number of bucks that you're chasing each season? Do you like, do you say, I'm just going to target this one buck and that's it? Or do you have multiple areas where you have multiple target bucks per season? I will only target one buck. Now, if something happens to him and I think I only want to shoot one buck a year and I've got that buck in mind, I'll put my time and effort there. But if I know that he has a second home range that he spends a lot of time doing the rut and if he disappears and i've got another one in a place that i can hunt then i may move over to that one because and i'll continue monitoring my cameras now used to i just use sign uh, but i'll continue monitoring my cameras until he returns but normally i just want to shoot one buck and i put all my effort in that but Fellas, don't get locked into a stand when that deer is not at home. You may be in the right stand or right location, but he may be in his other home range, and he's just not at home, and you are really wasting your time there until he comes home. Of course, you may sit there a week, then he may pop up, and you've got it. That's the best situation. If I don't have another material buck to hunt, I'm totally happy to take that chance yeah. and to wait on him. So, uh, and and I, I find is, let me say this. I, I may have one in one property where his core area is and core area consists of about 160 acres or something, or I may have, I may have two in that, on that one property that has a core area. Sometimes that's pretty rare because I don't have a lot of big properties to hunt, but let me, let me tell you how I find their core area. It might be interesting, uh, just, just as a, another rabbit hole we can go down here. Uh, yeah. I put, and all the hunting properties I have available to me, I put mineral eggs and it's still legal in, a lot of states and i put mineral licks beside all the thickest cover on the properties i don't care if it's a half a acre and a half or if it's 10 acres i'll put mineral licks beside the thickest roughest cover on that particular property because the most mature bucks will be in that unaccessible cover and i'll put mineral licks around every one of them and then i'll put my cameras on them in late july now when I get a picture of a mature buck on a mineral lick close to thick cover that time of year, I know for a fact that that buck lives there. That's his core area. Because in July, the rut has not pulled him, and he will not be moving far. Now, he may he may relocate in his home range to a prime food source in April and May and feed there because they soybeans or something. But he will he will move back by July and August when that drives up. He will move back to his core area. And when I get a picture of a material buck in July, that buck is not probably traveling over uh, 160, 200 acres. I know, I know, I have found his core area. It's in that thicket that I have put the mineral lick beside. I, I read an article years ago by a guy that said that when you find a big rub in late August or or late September or early October when they first shed the velvet, it don't mean anything. He wants to see them big rubs in November. Well, I take subject with that. I I believe that it's right the opposite. When you find a big rub in November, that buck could be a mile and a half, a 
five miles if he's in another quarry, but he could definitely be a, a mile, mile and a half from, from there in his, in his home range. But if you find a big rub where right off they shed their velvet in uh, late September, early October, that buck is still in his core area and that buck has not traveled far. And you have found, you have found his core area just as you have when you get a picture of one in, in, in July and August. So it's very important to find a buck's core area and know where he lives. And, and, and then, of course, we'll start looking for funnels, and uh, which is my next subject. We'll start looking for a tree to hunt in that core area. Has that raised any questions in your mind? And No, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, and uh, I've actually had that conversation quite a bit uh, pretty recently, just about finding core areas this time of the year when they're traveling a pretty good bit less than they will other times of the year um you know if if i if i go and i put a trail camera out right now uh and within a couple of weeks i don't have the pictures that i want i I maybe don't have the deer that i would like to see i'm probably going to move it for that reason because if it's not there in his core area then i'm just wasting my time this time of year if i don't have him in that amount of time because i just don't feel like they're traveling an ultra long distance right now and so, you know, I, I just, if I'm not finding the sign or um, something like that, like I, I just, I just typically am not going to waste my time for that reason. So I think that that's, that's good to think about, you know, if you're finding the stuff that you're wanting to find right now, this time of season, if you're finding those, you know, if you find a scrape that's open or a big rub, and to me, that makes perfect sense that you are in his core area this time of year. Is that is that basically what you're saying? That is that's exactly what I'm saying. Now that don't mean that you're gonna kill him there during the rut. That's not where I'm gonna hunt him. Exactly. But it does. If you lose a buck and lose his sign and he's not showing up, his sign's not showing up in a tight funnel where you're hunting him. It's always good to go back to his quarry and start there and see if he's home or if he's perhaps in in another home range. So yeah, that's that's basically what I'm saying. And and I will hunt a now this thing about late October. People talk about rubs and scrapes. I've wrote a lot of articles and stuff. I I, I kind of I'm one of the first hunters to start using scrapes and 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 uh, really use them effectively. And I you can Google and find some articles I've wrote on scrapes and and rubs. But I make a lot of mock scrapes. But people often ask me, will I talk about hunting early in the year? Uh, will I hunt? rubs and scrapes i will and i've killed some good deer on scrape lines and rubs and they're basically the same thing they're they're showing you they're showing you a travel corridor and there's a purpose for them but we won't get into all that we don't have time but the only time i will hunt the only time hunting a scrape 90 percent of the time it's going to be effective is from october 25th if it's unseasonably cool till november 1st or 2nd or 3rd that's a very people hunt scrapes a lot they don't have much success, but they're hunting them before that period or after that period. When those bucks get pulled later than in my, in my area in the Midwest, later than October 25th, when they get pulled into daylight, until the first wave of does come in about November 3rd or 4th, there's a short, very short period of time there you can effectively hunt stripes. Outside that, you're educating the deer and, and wasting your time. But I thought I would throw that in too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense here especially in the south man i don't know if you've if you've noticed that the hunting scrapes 
in the South is, and I don't know if it if it would be so much for like the age class of deer that you're that you're referring to, versus you know the three three and a half four and a half year old deer that most people would be okay with but i have found for me that pretty much any time of the season i don't i don't see a lot of deer on scrapes um early season if i hunt a scrape early season and i can find one that's close to bedding is typically the time when i'm going to see the most deer but any other time i just don't typically see that which makes a lot of sense here and you talk because there's really only maybe a week right there um, when it can be, you know, more effective. And if you're not hunting during that week, then sure, you're not going to, it may not be effective for you. Like you said, you may just be educating. That's that kind of is what it well, sounds he, like you're saying. Correct. He's still coming through uh, yeah. earlier in October, but it's good night and you have educated him to your location and the five reasons you've, you've educated him when you're hunting anywhere you've educated him. And by the time he would be moving in daylight, you run him off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that 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 is the fact. That that's that's why most people are not productive hunting straights or rub lines. In part one, I revealed that I believe the number one problem with most would-be trophy hunters is that they just don't understand what is important and what is not when it comes to killing big bugs. I discussed uh, that in pretty good detail. I, I mentioned this is partly due to the commercialization of deer hunting. And self maybe self-promotion of individuals who like to be considered experts, even though they may have not put the time and effort in required to reach that status. Because of false information put out by people who really don't understand what is important in our quest to harvest mature bucks, I believe a lot of incorrect information is being passed around. I guess you could call this circular reasoning. We see this in a lot of walks of life. It it should be apparent that many of the ones who pass in this information back and forth and to others, they really don't have the resume that maybe they should have to be considered true experts. Of course, you guys know that you can sit behind a computer screen and be anything I guess you want to be. But I want to say I've spent a big part of my life singularly focused on bow hunting big bucks. Uh, for probably 55 years, much of my daily thought and effort has been on this subject. I've spent much more time in the deer woods than I have indoors, I'll have to say that. <laughs> and I say that to say this, to let you know that I might know something about killing big bucks. and. If you do not understand this up front, you and a lot of my listeners uh, may not take this information to heart because it may be a little seem a little simpler than a lot of stuff that's put out there, and it it it, it, it may be maybe seem a little too simple. So that's why I wanted to say that it would be disappointing to me if that was the case. Uh, bow hunt has given me much joy and feelings of accomplishment throughout my life, and. The older I get, the more I feel the need to pass this information on to others. Uh, it's information, knowledge that I can pass on, not the selling of gimmicks or promoting, uh, promoting uh, hunting aids that really don't make a difference. I've had plenty of opportunities to be on hunting shows, and I always declined. I, I just, I just, 
I can't push products and tell blue collar workers like me that if you buy this product or buy more products and uh, you're going to kill more bucks. That's just that's that's just not the case. Educating others is my stewardship to the sport of bow hunting trophy whitetail. Like most people who reach a certain level of accomplishment, I feel a need to pass information on to others. When it comes to things I understand, such as bow hunting trophy whitetail deer and archery, I'm willing to help all who ask of me. My fear is not that by doing so, I will fall victim to myself. My fear is that I will awaken one morning and not have anything hard to push against, and as a result, I will grow weak and perish. I, I, I don't care to help anybody that asks me, even my competitors, because I need I need something every day to push hard against, and and uh, the the more competition they can give me, then the better I will be, is what I'm trying to say. As I stated, our main goal in bow hunting is to increase our chances that a mature buck will walk by our stand during legal shooting hours. That's 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 it. Buying more gimmicks will not help in this endeavor. I can, fellas, I can actually hunt with the cheapest bow and tree stand on the market, and it, and it will not affect my success one bit. Mm-hmm. And those reached a certain level, I'll, I'll could tell you the same thing. My success is based on knowledge and the time and effort it takes to implement that knowledge. This is the only way to obtain mature bucks. That is to earn them. If you're going to kill multiple mature bucks, you've got to earn them. That's the only way to do it. In part one, I introduced three things like we talked about that will increase our chances of success in bow hunting trophy whitetail. Any one of these three tactics taken alone will increase our odds of success to some degree. However, when we take all three and when we implement all three, I think it will give a hunter and better than average chance that he will be able to harvest mature bucks. The three tactics as we talked about a while ago, uh, I'm talking about is hunting during the rut, stand selection, or stand placement, some people might want to call it, and persistence. We talked about the benefits of hunting during the rut last time in part one and and discussed the main thing is how it can diminish our chance when hunting a mature older class buck. It can diminish our chance of success if we hunt here like this before the rut movement starts because uh, they didn't, you've heard a lot, they didn't, they didn't get over being dumb, but <laughs> I've told you how. You know, I've told you I've told you how they can discover that we're hunting them before the rut, and most people will find that big sign and they'll get excited and they'll get in there and get set up on it, and they'll hunt it and hunt it and never kill the deer, and they just they just don't understand why. Well, I hope I maybe answered some of those questions. We covered that as thoroughly as possible, I think, in the time we had available. <clears throat> So now we're going to take a look at number two, which is stand selection. If you're not hunting in the right location, fellas, you'll 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 never get a chance at a mature buck, even while hunting during the rut. So one of these taken alone will increase your chances of success somewhat. I've heard it said that any tree in the woods during the rut rut can produce a mature buck, and that's true. So 
hunting deer in the rut will increase your stand your, your chances somewhat but if you're not in the right location that's that that somewhat maybe once or twice during a lifetime so we got to add all three of these together to give ourselves a reasonable chance that a mature buck will walk by our stand uh, close enough for a shot. I think poor stand location is the reason many hunters hunt all their lives and, and never harvest a mature buck. They do not find that one tree a mature walk, buck will walk by more than any other or pass by even once. So I'm amazed when I scout public or otherwise hunted ground to find that the only tree I would possibly consider hunting from has never had a tree stand in it. This has happened on multiple occasions. I've killed most of my big bucks on public ground, and I will get in there and walk it thoroughly in the spring or fall sometimes is the occasion. I like to do it in the spring, of course, and do my scouting. But I will walk that thoroughly, and I will find that one special spot. It will jump out at me. I will realize it's that one special spot. And the only stand maybe in the whole park or public hunting that I would put a tree stand in and consider hunting and there's never been a never been a stand in it so that's that's always amazed me I have often thought that some of you guys may be familiar with some of these fellows but that if the late Roger Roth there and Barry and Gene Wins on Don Higgins and myself I've often thought if we all scouted the same patch of woods and each picked three trees to hunt from I honestly believe that we would pick two of the same trees, if not all three. Once you realize what's really important in stand selection, then you will start killing mature bucks regularly. So I'm gonna to try to point out a few things that might help you in this. <clears throat> Many of my mature bucks has been killed in locations that very few, if any, hunters would have been hunting. This is because that in a lot of these locations, there were no big buck sign whatsoever around my stand. Big buck sign in and of itself is not what dictates where I place my stands. I place my stands in pinch points and funnels. You, you could use these words. Uh, there's a lot of ways to describe it, but we're all talking about the same place. Whatever terminology you want to use, it describes restrictions which narrows parallel game movement. This is what I look for when I enter the woods to find a place to shoot an old buck. By nature, a funnel does not cover much distance. Sometimes no more than a few yards will be inside the forced deer movement. This is the reason a lot of funnels have no big buck sign in them. However, if you take each of the forced together corridors or trails and if you walk them in say both directions a hundred yards you will probably find a lot of big buck signs particularly if it's three or more corridors so if you take all the big buck sign on each of the corridors in a hundred yards in each direction and put that all together at the point the funnel tightens up then you would have an indication of the possible productivity of that funnel. So what I'm saying is, all the big buck sign on the trails, the 100 yards each way, say, that's leading to that funnel, you just as well, it's just, it would be the same thing as having that sign at that funnel because the bucks 
that are forced there is coming to the funnel, the ones that's making the sign. So with any place in the whole wide world to be, you must find that one tree a material buck will walk by more than any other. Oftentimes, he don't even know where that will be himself when he starts moving. You can find this tree if you know what to look for, though. This tree will be in some geographical or man-made feature that will funnel parallel deer movement. This spot will definitely be in a funnel. You see, a deer is a deer is a deer is a living creature where everyone is found. His movements are governed by terrain features which offer the least and safest route. All living creatures, whether we're talking about rats or fish or varmints or white-tailed deer or even people, have similar traits that govern their life. To be successful, those who desire to intercept living things should understand that there are living areas where all creatures feel safe and spend most of their time. Depending on the animal, these are sometimes called living areas, they're called lairs, they're called sanctuaries, and they're called homes. Uh, so it just depends on what animal you're talking about. Additionally, there are places which all living things for one reason or another travel to. And of course, by requirement then, there are paths or travel routes which are used to connect living areas to where animals travel. It is most important to realize that on these travel routes, there are restrictions and obstacles which constrict travel down to a smaller than normal place. It is in these restricted areas of travel which those who are interested in intercepting living creatures should be most concerned in finding. From talking to a lot of people over the years about funnels, it has been apparent to me, fellas, that a lot of them still don't really grasp what funnels are and they do not grasp the benefit of funnels. So I'm gonna to try to use a couple of different things here. I was thinking about that today to kind of point out their benefit and exactly what a funnel the advantage it gives you and what they are. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, use an illustration, let's say using human beings. I think I can compare the two here. Uh, this is a sample we'll all understand because we are humans and we understand humans and human activity better than we can understand any animal. So hopefully we'll be able to take this scenario and relate it to a white-tailed deer. So what I was thinking about today, let's assume we are a law enforcement officer who has discovered the location of, a, say, a long sought after fugitive. This fugitive uh, illustrates a mature buck. And we, the law enforcement officer, let's say that's, we're the hunters. Okay, our, our, our subject is an experienced career trainable who will not be easy to apprehend. He will quickly flee if he realizes he is being hunted. Now, that's the same as a mature whitetail, of course. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we cannot, we cannot just rush in and try to drive him. We'll have to study his movements through surveillance and discover where he lives, works, eats, shops, and frequents, you know. These places 
or in our fugitive's town, which can be compared to a buck's home range. Mm-hmm. So, in most situations, it would not be advisable to attempt to pick up a fugitive at his house. When this fugitive is home, he would probably see us coming up the street and run out the back door if we attempted to apprehend him there. So, a person's home is compared to a buck's sanctuary. He's got escape routes, and, and he's he's picked a place where he can see trouble coming. Furthermore, we, we probably would not be a good idea to try to arrest a fugitive while he's moving about his yard and workshop and, and immediate area of his home. This location would demonstrate a buck's core area. He knows this location like the back of his hand and would notice any intruder approaching. Likewise, we would probably not want to go to his job because he could see us approaching and escape because we would not know exactly where he is at his job site. A job site would illustrate a place a buck travels to and spends much of his time, say, a prime feeding area where there's a lot of does. So we decide to hide and wait on our fugitive as he's traveling to and from his home to his job, say, because this is where he travels to most often. We know we'll only have one shot to apprehend him because if he detects us, it will be very difficult to get close to him again. Same way with Mature Buck. If we miss him, he's gone because he'll either, our fugitive would start making evasive moves to avoid us or he will leave the location completely and that's the same exact way with a mature bug. So let's assume our Crenimal has five travel routes when leaving his home heading to work. These five different roads are corridors or travel routes for for a buck. They represent corridors or trails or travel routes for a buck also. Sometimes our fugitive takes one route because he may need gas. Other times he takes another route because he wants to stop and get breakfast. He might take another route, one of the five roads, because uh, he needs to pick up some groceries on the way to work. Another road he might might be a more scenic route, say, and he travels it when he's not in a hurry. Not knowing exactly which road the fugitive will take when he leaves his house on a given day, we decide it would not be a good idea to try to intercept him close to his house because we do not know which of the five different roads he will travel. He may, we might be waiting on one route uh, that he does not travel down for a couple of weeks or more. The five different roads are, are not any different than uh, five different trails a buck occasionally travels and leaves big sign on. So by scouting the area in the fugitive's town, a mature buck's home range, same thing, we discovered that there is a major river between our subject's home and place he travels to, including work. We further discovered that there's only two bridges that cross this river. One of the roads, one of the two roads, crossed the, once the two roads cross the river, they branch out into several different trails uh, going to the fugitive's job and other places of interest. In a buck's home range, the river represents some type of barrier that restricts parallel movement and forces the movement together or through gaps in it. It could be a ditch funnel with steep banks, which the deer goes around, 
or it could represent a creek or a stream or a river with a couple of low places in the bank where most of the deer cross. Well, because of this river, we will not need to try and guess which one of many roads the fugitive will be traveling. This natural geographic feature of the river is a pinch point or funnel that narrows traffic down to a much more refined area than otherwise would be the case. Here the traffic goes across the river, is narrowed down to two bridges. This is where a savvy law enforcement officer, I think, would want to set up and try to apprehend the fugitive, just as we would increase our odds of success when we set up in a funnel when hunting a mature buck. Is, is there anything else we can do to increase our odds of success in apprehending the fugitive even more than setting up on one of the two bridges which he crosses regular? Well, what if we decide to put a road-closed construction sign on one of the bridges? This would increase our chances twice as much on any given day. Well, this would be similar to blocking one of one or two trails or corridors close to our stand so we could push the buck on the trail that passes by within within range. So you've got a big funnel, say the backbone of a ridge, and it's a little wider where we want to hunt than, than we'd like it to be. So if we have permission, if it's our land or we get permission, we could cut down some trees and different things and push that trail over and, and clean out clean out and make it look like the trail we want in the on is really used and no obstacles at all. I do this all the time. And if I'm not allowed to cut down a tree or something of that nature, I'll pull up some old limbs, brush piles. There's always large limbs and different things falling in the woods and I, I will block, I'll block that off. So that'd be the same way. Okay, let's get back to our fugitive. Even with the best we can do to put the odds in our favor on a given day, it's not foolproof even at that. We might pick, fellas, we might pick a day or two the fugitive is off work, and he might be traveling in the opposite direction to somewhere unexpected. This, this could represent a buck being pulled off his regular schedule by a hot doe or forced movement, see. And furthermore, the fugitive may take a vacation and, and return back to his birthplace, which he left young in life to find better employment, and he might do this for a week or more to visit with his family. Well, this would be like a mature buck returning to his secondary home range for a few days or a few weeks. Because of these reasons, we would not necessarily intercept our fugitive as soon as we would like. However, if we're patient, we will intercept him eventually because we have to put the odds, we, we put the odds in our favor by hunting the funnels in every possible way we can, in every way humanly possible, and sooner or later we're gonna kill that material buck. But some people, I think, do get discouraged because they, they set up in a funnel, they listen to and, and read about a lot of funnels and they set up in them and they expect it to be automatic and quick and you're dealing with personalities with humans and with deer. So the deer could have been pulled off a few days or like I said, a lot of times I think he in his secondary home range and people don't even realize that. So I hope this illustration demonstrates why 
hunting a restricted area funnel during the rut can put the odds in our favor more than anything else. If we set up in a corridor, such as a strip of narrow woods where one or more mature bucks occasionally pass through, we might have a decent chance of success at this location if we hunt enough during the rut and if we hadn't already educated the deer to our presence before he's moving in daylight. Even so, we must remember that when the does start coming in heat, a given mature buck can be traveling anywhere. When they start cruising, looking for a hot doe, it does little good to set up on buck sign. They're through with that. They're making that to advertise their presence and attract the does and let the family groups and does know they're coming through. But once them does start coming in heat, then they no longer are concerned about the corridors where they're making the sign. And they won't necessarily be walking trails or traveling down corridors for this reason. Oftentimes, as you know, mature bucks traveling during the rut don't even know where the trails and rubs and scrapes are in the woods they're passing through because it may be two miles. They may be traveling two miles from their home looking for a hot doe or the first hot doe or they may be between does. During the rut, mature bucks are often seen traveling through fields, crossing roads, and major interstates. They're, they're just going in that rut craze. A funnel or restriction that forces deer movement into a smaller area is vital to hunt during this time because such an obstacle confines traveling bucks and it forces them to a smaller location and makes that location somewhat predictable if you know what to look for when you're when you're looking for a, a restriction. Fellas, I'm going to paint a picture for you to further show the benefits of hunting a funnel and maybe explain a little more what a funnel is like. Let's take a regular sheet of notebook paper and turn it on its side and let's just imagine this represents a patch of woods that we will be hunting that has no funnel in it. Now in both of my books I've got I've got a picture illustrating this, but for a lot of my listeners, they're not going to have this picture, so I'm going to, I'm going to paint a picture here with words the best I can. So let's take a regular piece of notebook paper and turn it, turn it long ways, horizontally, and let's assume that five different mature bucks will pass through this hunting area during the rut. So let's draw five horizontal lines spaced down the paper representing the travel of five mature bucks on our hunting property. We're going to randomly space these lines because during the rut, when bucks are in their rut craze looking for hot does, there's really no rhyme or reason to where they will travel unless they're forced to travel a certain place. So as you can see, if you put a spot anywhere on the piece of paper representing a, a deer stand, there would be no more than one and a big possibility, no bucks close, close to that spot. There would be none of them walking close to that spot and just by chance, maybe one, but that's it. Now that's what represents where most people are hunting. When those bucks start rambling and getting their rut craze and they're no longer following their corridors where they're banking their raves rubs and strafes, they're looking for that hot first hot doe or they're between does. That is exactly 
what will represent how they travel. And I can't I can't describe that to you and sound like I'm sophisticated or some kind of whitetail guru and know a lot more about where a deer will be walking than you will by telling you something about his lifestyle. I can just point out the odds to you and tell you the truth about it, and, and that is just the way it is. Uh, okay, now let's let's do something different. Since since none of these bucks is passing by our stand, let's draw a dark line halfway through the paper from the bottom up with a marker. Let's just take a marker and draw a dark line halfway up. This line represents, let's say, a ditch funnel or a body of water, something that will force deer up around it to the head of it. Okay, keep in mind that a mature buck will walk three times further around a ditch funnel than he will walk down in it and back up out of it, especially an older buck because when they get older, arthritis sets up in their hips, and that's why you see these bucks looking real stiff walking during the rut. It's because they their enhanced travel day and night and arthritis is set up, and they would have a difficult time climbing out of even a a small ditch, plus it puts them in a blind spot, and they don't like that. So they would walk three times further around. So this this line, like I said, represents a ditch or a body of water that will force deer around to the head of it, and it could be some other kind of uh, funnel that would force deer through a gap in it, but ours is a, a ditch or a body of water. Now, let's redraw the lines which intersect which intersect the black mark. Let's this is the lines that represent the deer walking walking through the lower half of the paper. Let's draw them up to the top of the mark and then draw them back down to where they were and cause they're gonna travel on on their way where they was going. And just draw them the remainder of the way across the piece of paper. Now let's place a dot, which, like I said, represents a tree stand, at the top of this dark mark, which represents the head of a restricted area, like a like a ditch funnel. Now, now, how does how does a stand placement? How does our stand placement look? That's as better. you can see, yeah. Well, as you can see, it's put three of the five deer within close proximity of each other end of our stand. If we're set up correctly at the head of a funnel, of course all funnels are not made the same. Some of them are tighter, some of them cover a longer distance, and some of them restrict deer movement 100% and some of them not 100%. But as you can see, a ditch funnel, if you walk through the woods and down the backbone of a ridge just slightly, you'll come upon a pretty steep funnel uh, occasionally as water has eroded the ground as it's run off the ridge and, and made a drainage or, or a ditch ditch funnel, and as and as you can, if you go up to the head of that where it begins to fade out, then you will see several trails coming together, and right at the very pinch point of the head of it, all of them will be pushed to one major trail, and this is even better if the top of it this this ridge is farmed, then there's a fill on top. Even the deer that would be walking the top is walking down and going between the where the ditch fades out and the fill. So this are some of the 
most enjoyable funnels I hunt. It, 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 that's the funnel I look for most often. It's not the only one. When we, when we hunt a funnel where three or more corridors or travel routes or trails are forced together within range of our weapon, we give ourselves the odds, and let's say we're hunting a funnel where three travel door, corridors are forced together. Well, we give ourselves the same odds hunting one day right there as we would hunting three separate days, let's say 100 yards either direction, where only we're covering one corridor. So, as you can see, because more bucks are moving during the rut and because we're in a place that forces more bucks together, then it all does the same thing. It increases our odds that a mature buck will walk by our stand. And you say, well, I'm not going to just hunt one day. So, or, or you say, well, I can just hunt one day a week and, and it'd be the same as hunting three days a week. Well, that's, that's correct. But when I cover persistence, I want to point out how valuable it is to hunt as much as you possibly can. So let's say we hunt the whole 25 days of rut movement time in a funnel that forces three or four different corridors together. Now, can you see how that would increase our chances that a mature buck will be forced by our stand? That will, that's exactly the goal we're wanting. So I'm just really trying to... I'm really trying to point this out and, and how important it is to hunt something because during the rut, when they're in their rut craze and they're moving, they don't pay attention to trails, rubs, scrapes, corridors. They don't even know where they're at a lot of times in the wood they're passing through. So when, when, when we're scouting for the place to shoot a mature buck, our job is to find the best funnel that we can possibly find in our hunting areas. Some funnels are easy to find, fellas. I mean, they're just obvious. I mean, I've seen open gates and an old farm fence in the middle of a backbone. It's just some of them are that obvious. I have often pulled up an old fence from the leaves and forced it up and propped it up with fork sticks to refine deer. Like I said, I've, I've cut down trees even it's, and pulled brush up. Some of them are easy to find. And before I even go to hunting area, what I will do, I will get a topographical map and area photograph of that, and I will put them side by side. Because on some of the some of the funnels, you can see on the area photograph, they really stick out, but you cannot see them on the topographical map. And likewise, sometimes you'll see one on a topographical map that will not show up on the area photograph. So if you know what to look for, you're you're looking for the geographical features of the uh, topo lines and and where they're narrowed down for different reasons, the ditches on both sides. Sometimes you can see them uh, funnels a lot better on the topo map, and sometimes the aerial photograph will reveal them that you won't even see on the topo map. But the best way to find funnels, and this has been the case for me anyway, is get in and walk the property. If I'm going to a new, I killed a real big deer in Illinois a few years ago. It went to a piece of property I've never been on before. And the first thing I asked the guy that had uh, directed me to this piece of property, I said, are there any creeks or streams on it? And he said there was. And I found a creek caught crossing and killed just an absolute monster. <laughs> so if there's any creeks or streams on the land, 
that I'm going to hunt, I'll walk them first, and I'll be looking for natural places where the bank's low where deer will cross. And then I'll walk any bluff line or steep bank, if there's any on the property, to find a gap in the bluff line or, or the bank that deer are passing through. And then, fellas, I'll walk the backbones of ridges looking for drainages that push deer up to the top. And if I find one on one side of the backbone, I want to go to the other side, and hopefully there's a steep drainage offset of it on the other side of the backbone. And if there is, then you've really got a gold mine where two, two steep drainages with deep sides is running parallel with that ridge. And that's not only good because it's pushing all the deer to the top. It also forms a saddle when you've got two deep drainages like that that's meeting on the backbone of a ridge. If you look at it from a distance, look at the ridge line, and you'll see it's a little lower there. So any deer going over or across the top will also go that way and use that saddle. Uh, just keep in mind when you're walking around the woods looking for funnels, deer will follow the path of least resistance just like you will when you're walking through the woods. Uh, some some funnels are less less distinctive than some of these we just talked about. Some funnels may be actually made by the way the air the current eats across the property. These can be difficult to find. Uh, anytime you find where three or more trails merge together for a little ways before branching back out, then you have discovered a funnel. And if you look at the area, you may realize the topographical or man-made feature that's causing that. And then, fellas, sometimes you may not. Like I said, it, it may be that the air eases a certain way. Did you know that there's places in the woods that a mature buck, and as they get older, they learn these places, there's places they can go and actually smell humans from several different directions in one spot. I'll give you a couple examples. In a low place where the in the evening as the air cools, where it gets to the bottom of a bowl-like terrain feature, it will settle there, and it will be coming to that spot from all the ridges around it. So you can stand in one spot, a deer can stand in one spot, and as the air comes down the ridges to this one low bowl or or bottom, then they can smell intruders from several different locations, not just one direction if there's no wind current. And you can take a, I hunt in a lot, of, I live in a mountainous area and I hunt a lot of bluff lines, and air can be blown in a certain direction through a gap in a bluff, and it will pull air from the ridge on both sides of the gap. It will pull air into that bluff. And these deer learn that. So there's 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 certain funnels that are made the way that just because of the way the air eats across the landscape. And the best way I found to find these subtle funnels is to walk the woods two or three days after a few inches of snow has covered the ground. You'll be amazed, fellas, at what you'll find if you'll walk the woods when there's snow on the ground. It's You'll, you'll cut a trail and walk a few deer tracks to be on a trail, and before you know it, there'll be four or five more coming to that trail, and, and then maybe from the other direction, some more come into it. And I count the tracks. The, I count the number of tracks. When they really get concentrated, I'll count the number of tracks 
that has been funneled together, whether it's a funnel I recognize and realize why or not, and then I'll take off again, and I'll follow another trail, and I'll come up to another tight funnel, and I'll count those tracks. And, and actually, I'm doing that during the snow, and I will add up the number of tracks in each funneled together place, and the, one of the biggest ways that I pick the funnel I will be hunting for is the one with, that has the most funneled together tracks. Of course, I'll also consider my, my approach to the stand, how easy I can get into it, and, and different things, but I really like to concentrate my effort uh, when I'm scouting during the snow and find a lot of tracks forced together. I like to concentrate my effort where the largest number of tracks are together. Uh, most people just cannot find that special location a mature buck passes through during daylight to give themselves a reasonable chance of success. I hope this is, I'm pointing out here, talking about funnels, why that is and, and, and what place we should be looking for. Uh, fellas, a lot of people just can't find it, and a lot of hunters do not recognize it as such when they do happen upon that great location. They simply don't know what they're looking for and or they're not confident enough in their ability to find that special place. I have had a lot of people come and want to go to the woods with me and scout with me. I used to put on a little hunting seminar in the woods, and I occasionally still take a few people out and, and show them kind of what I've had the opportunity to learn through many years. And I've taken a lot of them out, and I kind of guided them in a certain direction toward a real tight funnel that covers a lot of distance. And once they get there, they begin to see the benefits and kind of mentioned this and that and, and but before you know it nearly all of them will start second guessing themselves and they'll want to move on so it's important a lot of times you'll find that special place and you just won't really realize it now how do you realize it it's just through experiences the only way i can tell you and hunting them and seeing that that was beneficial and the other than one or you can do like i was talking about wait till snow falls and get in the woods and if twice as many tracks are going through that one spot within bow range of your stand as any other spot, then you have found the spot. You just need confidence enough in it to hunt it and hunt it a lot. If you don't have confidence in a place and you half-heartedly hunt it and you decide after a day or two to get down and go somewhere else, then it will never do you go no good. And I've also found this. Sometimes if the hunter does recognize that special place, and once he becomes an actor at that location, it's no longer the sacred place he was because of the hunter's careless intrusion. You can't be sitting there before the rut wearing a great spot out, and you can't, <clears throat> you can't not have confidence in it during the rut and get down after 10 o'clock and leave and then go back in because every time you're in and out, you're disturbing the area and disturbing the deer. And I want to talk more about that in, in when I discuss persistence. Just about every hunting property has that special place where a good buck can be killed every year or two. This place fellas, I guarantee you, will be in some type of funnel. I know you've all heard about it. Guys saying, hey, there's a tree on this property that my dad and my grandpa and, and me and 
And I put another hunter there, and he killed a deer. A lot of times they happen on it by luck. They just happen to get in that area and kill one, and then they'll put somebody else there, and they'll kill them. And, and I guarantee you every one of those is in a funnel. I, I guarantee you every sacred place to hunt to kill a mature buck is in a funnel. There's so much I can, there's so many rabbits I can chase here down different holes, but I'm on a... I'm not going to right now. Uh, you mentioned some questions and answers later, so we'll look at that. Uh, as I previously stated, though, not all good funnels has big buck sign in them. However, the ones that do will give you a much more indication of their productivity. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. Fellas, the most productive place on earth to hang a stand to kill a buck is in a tight funnel with big rubs that are made at different times of the year and even during different years. Let me say that again. The most productive place on earth you can hunt is in a tight funnel with buck, big buck sign that is made at different times of the year and during different years. Now, the reason I said big buck sign made at different times uh, may not be obvious, but let me tell you, oftentimes a mature buck will be moving through a location and stop and make several rubs in one place before traveling on. He may make 10 or 12 rubs, and a layman may walk upon such a location and get extremely excited because of all the big buck sign he's seen. And, and and he gets really excited and starts hunting there and just wires it out. Well, he may be on a single buck's corridor, and that buck may have stopped and made that sign at one time. It may be the only time he was through there. That's why I said made at different times and in different years. If you examine the rubs and you notice some of the bark is dried out on some of them and some of them it's fresher, and it's not hard to, not hard to find to tell the age of a rub, if you examine it, you can see if there, some of them are fresher and some of them are older, and you can definitely see if some of them aren't here's with the old scars on the trees. Fellas, there's not a more productive place in the world to hang a stand than in a tight funnel that has large rubs made at different times of the year and in different years. I'm going to say it one more time. <laughs> that's, that's so important. When I talk about that one special place and that one special tree, now, it's the same thing if you get a mature buck's picture four or five times in a funnel and he hadn't made a lot of rubs because sometimes if the ground's real steep like it often is in a funnel, it's hard for him to stand there and make a lot of rubs. <clears throat> if you find, <clears throat> if you make a strafe and, and big tracks keep showing up, you don't have a trail camera. That's how I used to do it before I had a trail camera. Or if I put a camera there and I've got two or three different mature bucks, or one mature buck several times, maybe my target buck's picture there. Or if I go there and there's snow on the ground and there is a huge concentration of deer, that funnel is long enough and tight enough that it's forcing a huge concentration of deer together. Or if I go to the funnel and find a lot of big rubs made at different times, it all indicates the same thing. you got to understand that. It, every one of those indicates the same thing. Multiple use by my tear bucks or your target buck using it multiple times. 
Now, I hunt trails and travel corridors and buck sign when the timing and situation is right. From about October 25th to November 2nd or 3rd, it's possible to kill a big buck on a travel corridor with big rubs and stripes down a rub line or big stripes, fellas. If you do not educate him before he starts moving during daylight hours, and we discussed that timing where I live and hunt, and it's up to each person to do their own research. But remember, even though the timing is getting into the rut and getting it's warm, you're likely to run him off and do more harm than good by hunting him that early because he was still moving at night. But once we get, fellas, once we get into the first or second day of November, I switch, switch my tactics to hunting some kind of natural or man-made geographical feature that will force deer into a smaller spot. Most people will hunt will look for a traditional buck sign to set up on and they'll continue to hunt it through the entire rut. Fellas, that's why a lot of them fell in their quest and this season at the end of it they realize it ended up like the last season they just have not killed a big buck. Uh, once the big bucks start hunting and I, I want to find a geographical feature that will force three or four corridors together this will triple or quadruple my chances of success and fellas this is the only thing in the world that will do that mm -hmm. that's it so that's we've we've discussed hunting deer in the rut and not hunting too early and now we've discussed stand placement and what I look for and that's pretty well in a nutshell my take on it. Do you have any questions that <laughs> mind on that? There are so many questions going through my mind yeah. and maybe not even questions mostly I just want to say uh, that, that I'd like it's hard. It's hard to ask questions based on things that you maybe haven't heard, right? Right. Like, like you have so many questions, but most of those questions are based on like, well, well this is what I've always known. You well, know what I mean? Yeah. And and with with what everyone else normally covers in podcasts, you you kind of like you kind of know what to ask. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You have with a, Bobby. You 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 don't just yeah. because you're hearing stuff like you're processing because you're just like like I never even thought. It never even crossed my mind to count deer on a funnel, then go back yeah. and look at it and go, that one has 10, that one has five. Of course I want to hunt the 10. Yeah, I, I think I think the main thing, Bobby, right right when you right before you went into that section kind of talking about, you know, especially when there's snow on the ground and counting counting the tracks and finding the, the highest concentration, you started talking about an area where um, where all of like sent from multiple directions, kind of is forced down into would that be uh what you would consider to be somewhat of a thermal hub like where all the thermals kind of meet um knowing knowing what definitely would be now fellas i've never heard that terminology but let's say i see where it could come from easily let's say you take a wagon wheel and you lower you lower if you could push it down the center piece where all the spokes come together 
and you leave higher the outside rim. You leave it up higher. Mm -hmm. And then as the air cools, the air would, per se, run down the spokes into the hub. So, yeah, it could... I've never heard that terminology. Some you could easily describe it as a thermal hub. Okay, that's what I was picturing when you were talking mm -hmm. about it. And yeah. we've we've talked about thermal hubs before. Um, okay. But being able to kind of put it together, especially when you're talking about stand placement. So we've talked before with um, with several guests, honestly, just about those high odds places and connecting the pieces of the puzzle. So what I feel like what you just did is. Uh, a puzzle that was kind of a simple puzzle, uh, or a little bit simpler. Maybe the pieces weren't quite as uh, as uh, small. You just chopped up those puzzle pieces and you put more details into that mm -hmm. to make it fit. Like the smaller details fit together. Yeah. And when so when we're talking about something like stand placement, or um, you know, or even like scouting, you know, talking about the the amount of detail that you're mm -hmm. going into when it, when you go in to scout an area and finding, you know, the, the old and newer buck sign, yeah. you know, and finding that to me just helped me, you know, kind of grasp a little, a little more of what you were talking about. Drew, do you have anything? I would, well, I was just going to say, Mr. Bobby too, what, what it does is, um, with the way you were describing, especially what Parker was just talking about, um, uh, the, 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 the different rubs at different times and different seasons, um, I know that I'm guilty of walking through the woods and just looking at a rub going, oh, man, that's, that's awesome. But, you know, um, and then you've seen an old one. Um, traditionally, guys are more like, oh, okay, well, that's an old rub. He's not here. He's he's gone. He's moved on. So that was that that was huge, too. And then but but also making sure that that those rubs are in a funnel. They're they're in a tight spot. And it's 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 really cool how you can, Mr. Bobby, take huge amounts of public land and you can shrink them things down pretty quickly in the sense of, okay, this is a funnel, this is a funnel and I want to hunt here. And you essentially took a thousand acres and you said, okay, well a thousand acres, he's going to walk through this two acre spot right here. And that's where I'm going to hunt. That's exactly right. And, and a two acre spot may, may not quite get it. You may have to, you may have to restrict his travel down. One, one way I do it is, uh, I make a large. I've I've wrote a lot of articles on mock scrapes. I'm one of the first one, I guess, that really talked a lot about it in depth. And anywhere that I'm hunting, that the deer don't funnel quite as close as I want, I will block off as much as possible, and then I will make a very large mock scrape right in the middle of where I want them to pass. It's nearly impossible for a big deer during the rut to pass up a fresh pod place in the ground and I've noticed a few things about the leaking branches over mature buck scrapes. A lot of times they're coming straight down or nearly straight down and a lot of times they're big as your thumb and a lot of times they're up high. I'm, I'm a little over six foot and I want, I want one up about my chest, upper chest or higher. Those are some characteristics I've noticed. So there's usually not a limb where I want my scrape to be. I want my scrape to be exactly where all the forced together, say, the head of a ditch fund or around mm -hmm. the body of water. I want my scrape to be exactly in the middle of where all of that is forced together at the tightest. Or if it's 
several supposed to get it here and several right on up above here because there's still a little bit of a drainage here, a little bit of steep side. So several's going here and several's going through, say, seven or eight feet or ten feet above that. I want it right in the middle of those two. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I will set my stand up appropriately where I can shoot to that strafe. And I will carry my limb. I will never move a strafe out of forced deer movement to where there's a handy limb. I will always take my limb in, and I want it a crooked limb. I want it sturdy, and I want it big on the end, and I want it coming down at a steep angle. That's why I want it crooked. I will take it in and sit tight in place and take a good heavy rake and really pile the ground up good. Now, fellas, I make my strafes in the spring. When I get in there and find all of my good tight funnels, I will make my strafes in the springtime because I disturb the area so much and leave so much human scent that if I make them in the spring, get my limb right, get if I have to push some deer movement together and get it right, and then I've disturbed the area quite a bit by winter, by fall, by, by the rut, it, there will be no human scent there, and, and the deer will be accustomed to They'll know where the stripe is. I know where a good leaking range is at the right height and has the characteristics of mature buck locks. They'll know, he'll know where that's at. And then all I'll have to do in the fall is go in and, and open that stripe back up a little bit with a raker. Usually the deer has opened it back up for me. If they hadn't, I'm pretty well going to assume that I've missed uh, the value of that funnel. They may not be a mature older age slash buck passing through that funnel. That's that's kind of an interesting scenario too. Uh, all bucks, all deer have boundaries to where they travel. They they don't just roam outside of those boundaries too much. And and you may make a you may know where you may have seen a big buck two or three hundred yards over here in God's picture, and you found this real tight funnel, and you think, well, I'm gonna set everything in this funnel and kill this deer here. He may not his boundary may not extend quite that far. I've lived on and hunted a piece of property for a long time that's about 3,000 acres, and, and, and there's some people that hunts on about half of it, and I hunt the other half. They have occasionally got pictures over the years of mature bucks that I've never, ever got a picture of, and, and I've done the same. And, but now some of them will run through both sides and, and off both sides. And you got to understand this, too, that setting up in that funnel – for a particular deer, I won't do it if I'm. And I always target my deer, but if I'm hunting a particular deer and I've never got his picture in a funnel, I don't care how tight it is. There may be more mature bucks coming through there, but if my target buck ain't, I won't hunt it. I think sometimes we're hunting funnels, and maybe a buck when he's young gets our wind, or you shoot it, maybe kill his doe when he's a fawn, or, or shoot at him, or he gets spooked, or he maybe gets spooked by a predator. There is certain type funnels inside of Buck's home range that he does not pass through. And and you would think that would be the one he would the most. And they might be a more subtle funnel, one that covers half the distance a few hundred yards away that he passes through regular. I used to, I've, I've learned this years ago before they were trail cameras, just by studying the tracks. And I would measure and, and look at tracks real heavy. And I would clean out a uh, strafe really good where I could examine and learn the tracks. And I'd learned what a particular buck's track had, and I learned this years ago that there was some funnels that a mature buck would not pass through, even in his home range. So you've got to be aware of that. There's so many rabbit holes we can run down here when talking about funnels, but you you got to be aware. You got to be aware of that. And 
for some reasons you, you'll never know. But if you don't have enough trail cameras to cover funnels, it don't bother me. I just I make large scrapes, and a big buck is not going to walk six or eight foot from a fresh large scrape during the fall and not go over and put his scent and and track actually in it. So uh, that's a good way to refine funnels even even finer if they're not quite as tight as you want is just to make a scrape. I, I never will forget years ago I was hunting in Illinois and I was hunting some private land but the shotgun season was fixing to open and there was a public archery only piece of property pretty close that you could hunt during the shotgun season on the outside. So I got in there and found a good tight funnel. I surmised that it was Friday and or it's thirsty, and I surprised when the shotgun season opened, there'd be some bucks pushed on there from uh, that normally didn't go on there anyway. So I got pretty close to the uh, property line of the managed area, and I found a nice backbone of a ridge. And I right at the base, there was a steep bank coming off the point of that ridge, and it was pretty steep, and it had forced several deer trails together and made a pretty tight funnel. And I made the prettiest mock scrape you ever seen in your life. <laughs> And I didn't have time to go back there and put my stand up, so I I just gonna carry it in in the morning and put it up. And as I was in there, I could see a flashlight and hear a guy climbing in the climber stand up there on that ridge right right above my funnel. And all I climbed up where I was at, and three or four hours later, I heard him hooping and hollering and went over and he had killed an absolute giant. And he said they was a big buck come walking the edge of that ridge and look down there and see that funnel and come running as hard as he could to that funnel. He said, I don't know if it was his, I mean, to that stripe. He said, I don't know if it was his stripe or not, but when he seen that stripe, he run, and it looked like 100 yards where he showed me that that, that buck had run to that stripe just to just to smell <laughs> it and put his foot in it and, and put his, I say foot, put his sin in it. And when I say foot, I mean just by the way they put their sin in it and they'll, they'll walk in as they walk on through it. It's not on purpose that it's attracting the stripe, in my opinion. But anyway, that just shows that a lot of times a buck won't pass by a, a, a nice funnel and not go over and, and smell of it and put his scent in it, too. So that's, that's a lot. I didn't really, that one, one or one of the rabbit, I didn't really intend to go that direction, but maybe some of that stuff is good. Mr. Bobby, any direction that you decide to go is going to be good. Yeah, um, I think so, too. I, I do have a question. Um, I've actually got two questions, and um, the first one is, is is fairly simple. Do you use any type of scent in your mock, mock scrape? Well, I'm not much on commercial stuff, Phil. I, I feel like that once the urine is gone, all that's left is ammonia from urine. I, mm-hmm. I haven't seen the difference in in human urine or deer urine in a scrape, I often urinate in a scrape. Matter of fact, I don't really call them mock scrapes. Sometimes I'll be sitting up in a tree during the rut and things will be happening and I'll get excited and I'll get the urge and I'll just get down and make a scrape. I ain't mock <laughs> It's human scrapes. I, I got down and made that scrape. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's that's just interesting excited? to know. No, you get excited sometimes, I'm sure. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I, I, I'll urinate in them, and uh, I don't see no use buying expensive uh, expensive uh, deer, deer urine. You, you never know. I know the pheromones. I know some of them advertise for, 
I went down that road for a while and tested different things that was advertised as uh, doe esters in heat urine. There's a lot more scent that enters when a, when a doe in heat urinates in a straight. There's a lot more scent that that is washed into that straight from her uh, body yeah. parts and her tarsal glands than there is that comes out of her 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 urinary tract. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that uh, we can. I don't. I don't believe we can. If we collect that and she's standing up straight and not urinating in the way that they do in the straight and over her tarsal glands, I I don't know if we can. I, I just hadn't seen. I, I put a lot of doe urine, doe esters urine out in years past, and I just, you know, come on. If we could imitate a, a descent of a doe in heat in her urine and put that out over a stripe or a mock stripe, and a buck was with two or three hundred yards of that downwind, he would break his neck come running to that. I just hadn't seen that, fellow. Yeah. I just, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I hadn't seen it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't waste my money, and I, I think. I think most people listen. All that's all that's cosmetic. Putting mock stripes is not, you know, it's not a commercialized thing. You don't mm-hmm. buy them. But uh, so much of this uh, buying all this uh, gimmicks is 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 cosmetic. It, it may it may help one percent of the time or two percent, but uh, I just uh, you know you make a good mock stripe and you you pile the drown out good and heavy and fresh and you got a big old heavy limb over it coming down from above. I don't care if there's sin in it or not. That buck is coming going to come over and put his sin in. I guarantee you, mm-hmm. if the timing is right, he's in the mood. If he ain't in the mood, ain't nothing we're gonna make him do it. Yeah. A lot of people don't even understand the purpose of stripes. I wrote several articles for North American Whitetail on rubs and stripes. You could Google them and and uh, see what I have to say on the purpose of rubs, the different types of rubs and of stripes. But uh, that's a long subject that we. <laughs> well, that was that was going to be my my next question is um, is there you know we've kind of covered stand placement and we probably need to um, we probably need to 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 wrap up that portion but i would like to know you've talked about multiple um rabbit trails that you could go down is there any literature anywhere that you would recommend um even if it's something that you've written anything more specific that maybe gets more into the i guess the nitty-gritty of of stand placement is there anything you'd recommend well i've re- i've written several articles over the years for north american whitetail magazine on funnels uh my book of course, you can't hardly find one at all right now. Passionate Quest, they just don't come on the market anymore. anymore. And if they do, they're they're extremely high. I've seen them go for over $1,000. But I probably got a, I cover understand placement. I cover funnels in that very extensively and uh, talk, describe a lot of different types of funnels. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there's other good material out there, fellas. I just, mm-hmm. I, I there's none of it that comes to mind right now that I could think of. Uh, uh, you know, the best way to, to to learn this stuff, and it's not a gimmick, uh, a mock scraper and a gimmick. I use it, it it's covered under stand placement. I use it in tight funnels to further refine deer, and I, I one of the biggest reasons, there's two or three reasons I make mock scrapes and always have. Uh, I want a standing shot. And if you guys have ever tried to put a sight pin on a on a buck that's 
cruising looking for hot doles. He ain't waiting around. Well, you could run and stop him, but that puts him on high alert. And if he's been grunted at before and shot at before from a tree stand, he is liable to run when you drunt. But if he don't run, if he hadn't had that experience and he stops, he is on high alert looking. And when you release, he may hear that. I want one to stop naturally, and that stripe, he'll always stop in it because it's right there in the tight funnel where it's supposed to be anyway, and he's going to always stop in it and work that limb and give me a nice standing shot. Another reason I make them, if there's a couple funnels of equal value to that buck around, and, and he comes through during the night and finds a huge stripe in one of them, and, and then he's got the option next time to go to one or the other, he's going to come to that one where he where he found that large scrape in and check it out and see if uh, doe and heat has urinated in it. That's why they make them. So that's 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 what he's going to do. Uh, uh, actually, a, a, a scent post, I call them, some people call them signposts, rubs, I call them scent posts. They, they've got the same scent in them and on them, the scent post rubs as a scrape. That, that buck will take his forehead and rub his tarsal glands and put that same scent on a rub. And I've seen those just absolutely lick it and it bounce around and just have a fit when they found a fresh rub like that. But there, there we go down some more, some more rabbit holes. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. Mr. Bobby. I, I'm not saying a stripe is a mock stripes is is not it's not cosmetic, but fellas, when you get out of hunting during the rut and not hunting before the rut in 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 pressured areas, not not in the not in some big piece of private ground or somewhere in a pen, but when you get out of that and when you get out of a stand placement, you, you lose your restriction that forces deer to a certain spot and you get out of the amount of time you spend hunting, which we're going to cover next time. Right. I think, I think that, I, I think you're getting into a lot of, uh, you're getting into a lot of gimmick stuff when you get into commercialized stuff that you can buy and all this. I, I think you, I think most hunters that, try to buy their way to success and don't do it in hard work is, is, is going to be disappointed. And the best way to learn funnels and discover them is walk the woods. That's, I mean, I, I've lived in the woods and I know terrain and I, I can see, I can see the features that force deer through them from a mile away. A trapper is the same way. An excellent trapper may not even know it, but he's an excellent deer hunter too. He uses terrain features. He goes and drives around, looks for ditches, and looks for coverage going under the road, and and looks for all kinds of stuff that funnels varmints, and that's where he sets his traps. And a, a very experienced or an expert trapper is an expert hunter. He just don't know it all. He's got to do is change the weapon. He uses and refine a few things. It's it's just a lot of time in the woods will will tell you where game's going to move, and 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 sometimes it's obvious. It's obvious that, you know, like you come upon a, a ditch you ain't going to cross and you're going to have to go around or a slough or a body of water. And when you're hunting water, I always remember that a deer would rather walk on dry land than he had wade, and he would always rather wade than he had swim. So you can use that to kind of kind of figure out how he's going to converse across the water. And if, if you're following a stream and it makes a pretty good U or a pretty good hook there, then you've found a good funnel. If a stream, let's say a stream is going across our piece of paper and it makes a horseshoe up or a bend down. Either way, a bend, I'm going to call it a horseshoe to describe it, but now it's a bend in the creek and then it continues on. Well, a deer walking, the, say the 
they the horseshoe goes up, the bend goes up. A deer walking above that stream, if he did not go completely around that horseshoe bend, he would be required to wade that stream twice. He would have to come on this side of the horseshoe, then walk a little dry land and go across the other side of the horseshoe. They will always, always go on the outside of that bend and that tightens up. It may not tighten up just one. There may be one walking the edge of the stream it tightens up and they may be another walking a, a 50 or 75 yards up and that horseshoe goes further than that so it also refines him around that to that to that point right on the outside edge of that bend in the creek. There's just so many funnels that you can describe and talk about that, that are in the woods. It's just, it just blows your mind uh, what you can find. And, and people say, well, there's no hunt funnel on my hunting property. That would be very, very unusual. And if that was the case, I would make some by piling up some brush and doing different things. But I would force at least, I would walk two different buck corridors and when they come, they're closest then I would move them on together through whatever means I had to use. I've, when I was hunting an old buck one time, he was in the no six and a half year old deer I ended up killing at seven and a half. He had two different ridges, backbones. He would occasionally go, go down, go into this big holler. And I, I, I refined him. I hung up an old, an old pair of striping underwear on one of them for a few days. <laughs> and sure enough, there was just, that was just enough encouragement <laughs> as it would have been uh, I think anybody that come across that was just enough encouragement to force him to the other and, and I, <laughs> so so you got to use a lot of imagination and uh, but I, I don't think products is going to help you much as your mind and the time you put it it's just like anything else the more you do it the better you become at it and the more you're in the woods the more things will begin to open up to you and if you'll get in there far enough i don't like to get in a snow no six or eight inch deep snow i like to do this in a two to three inch snow because if it's too much of a snow it may the snow itself may alter where the deer walks because of the difficulty so but if you can get in there with two or three inch snow every time it snows get in your hunting woods and walk and I may see the funnels without the snow, but you may not. You may not have that experience, and it, it may really open up your eyes to to what is causing deer to walk where they do, and that is exactly what you have to learn. First, I wanted to say I, I realize that some hunters may challenge what I'm saying by pointing to things they sometimes have seen take place in the deer woods that may differ from the observations I've put out here, Parker. Yeah. Therefore, I feel a need to, to back up and say what I am revealing here in this podcast is an average. It is what I believe takes place most often. However, I have learned over the years that there are two words that we should never use when speaking on whitetail, and these two words are never and always. There are just too many different situations that can happen in the woods to alter the norm, to use these two words. Plus, when dealing with whitetail, we're dealing with distinct and individual personalities. Therefore, there will be variations from what is normal. Just understand that the information I am putting forth is what will take place most often. Going into this, I may have assumed too much 
to think that everyone would understand this basic fact, and that's why I wanted to mention it. And I also want to apologize for the recognition I may be receiving just in case this podcast is taking acknowledgement away from those who have received acclaim on social media for their deer hunting prowess. I don't need or desire any of their praise. I have long ago become secure and confident in what I know. Through much time and effort, I understand hunting mature bucks. There is no longer any mystery there for me, Parker. I, what I'm saying is, I know, and I'm not saying that I know everything there is to know about this subject, but what I am saying is, I know everything I need to know about what is important in this, in this endeavor. See, the more you understand about a subject, the simpler it becomes. And it has really become simple to me uh, through much, many years of trial and effort. When you strip it down and remove all the cosmetic modifiers, the basis that I am revealing is all that really matters. Now, I will say that some things I call cosmetic modifiers, but say such as making mock scrapes or the use of trail cameras and such, can all be used effectively and to increase our odds somewhat when used within my three basic points once they have been implemented. Having said that, I would like to back up and quickly review what I talked about in part one and two. Uh, I won't take a lot of time here, but I began this podcast by saying that the number one problem I see in most undertakings is that the student does not understand what is important and what is not. In deer hunting and many other undertakings, this is partly due to the commercialization of our sport and also because of the rehashing of information that is passed around by people who have not really invested the time and effort to know what is important and what is not. Many hunters simply do not know enough to know what they don't know about bow hunting trophy whitetail. Because of these two and other reasons, the key ingredient that is missing to advancement is correct knowledge. Now, it's been my observation that most people are just too invested in protecting their own ego to learn from others. This is a huge mistake. Everyone you meet in life knows something that you do not. And if you engage everyone you meet and are willing to learn, you might acquire that knowledge they have. Once you have correct knowledge, you must be willing to use the time and effort required to develop that knowledge and the skill. Now, we talked about that, too. As I have pointed out through the last two parts of this podcast, the knowledge I consider important in trophy hunting, uh, bow hunting trophy bucks or mature bucks can be summed up in three basic points. That's hunting mature bucks during the rut, stand placement, and persistence. I realize there is a lot we can learn about white-tailed deer. I have spent much of my life studying the makeup and complexities of these amazing creatures. 
I believe this is a worthwhile endeavor for all whitetail hunters and whitetail students. The more we understand about the whitetail deer, the more we will respect and appreciate them. However, to effectively hunt them, the most important thing we can know is when and how they move about the woods. By having this knowledge and correctly implementing it, we can be in a position where our intended target will walk by us within range of our weapon. This is the first and essential requirement for us to be successful in bow hunting trophy whitetail. Back in part one, I discussed that the most effective time to hunt pressured whitetail is a 25 day period of time I call the rut movement period. I guess uh, you you remember that, Parker? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It was a period that, you know, varies according to where you hunt. And in part two, I discussed in some detail how important it is to place our tree stands in restrictions that force cruising bucks by them. And I elaborated a little bit on how to find such funnels. Of course, a lot of people can get creative and the more time you spend in the woods the quicker you can learn how to find funnels uh, it's, it's it's like any other endeavor now I, now I want to discuss persistence which in the context of this podcast is the amount of time a person spends hunting I will again say that any one of these three techniques of hunting taken independently will give a person a better chance of success than he would otherwise have. However, considering the uncertainty of events that might take place out of the norm in the deer woods and the individual personality of whitetail, all three of these points really must be put in place to increase our odds significantly. And I hope my readers understand that that, that this is the case. They do need to try to put all three in place. As I begin to discuss persistence, allow me to say that nothing means as much as does time spent in the woods hunting. However, if you do not concentrate your efforts during the rut in the right location, it may do little good no matter how much time you spend in the woods. Years ago, I was a deer hunting, of course, in Illinois during, during the rut, and I remember having a conversation with a couple of gentlemen outside a supermarket, and it was during November. At this time, I was writing regularly for several national publications, so the guys, they recognized me, and we struck up a conversation. If I remember correctly, they were from Alabama, and they had booked a rut hunt with a local outfitter. These two bow hunters told me that they were seeing a lot of deer each day, but they had not yet gotten a shot, and their two-week hunt was coming to an end. And I could tell they were really disappointed. They were blue-collar workers, and they had saved up for quite some time for this hunt. So I asked them if they were putting in a lot of times in their stand, and they said they had hunted all day on most days. Well, then I next 
inquired about their stand location. I asked them how many deer they were averaging seeing during the day. The hunters had both been seeing a good amount of deer. I think they said they were seeing between 20 and 30 deer a day, which is a goodly number. I'll be honest with you, Parker. I have hunted in a, some locations in the Midwest and, and seen up to 100 deer on, on different days if my funnel was... <laughs> If my tree was high enough, you know, in a, in a funnel that yeah. I could see a long distance, which a lot of times is not the case. But anyway, my next question was, how many of the deer that they were seeing could they have shot? And both of these guys' answers was about the same. Out of the 20 to 30 deer a day they were seeing, only four or five were coming within bow range of their stand. Now, this told me two things. One, it told me they were not hunting in a good funnel, and two, it told me that their chances were extremely remote of killing a mature buck if one did cruise through the woods in the area of their stand. You see, most of the time, because of the characteristics of a good funnel, visitation is limited. If a bow hunter is set up in a good funnel, then at least 50 or 60% of the deer he will be seeing will pass within bow range. I'll tell you the truth, many times when I'm hunting a tight funnel, as many as 90 or 100%, every deer I see will end up within range of my bow. Even though these young men had put in considerable time hunting, they had not taken a trophy buck, and I knew that their chances of doing so was extremely remote because of their stand placement. Uh, after the first, be honest with you, after the first three or four days of their hunt, if they had had the same conversation with me and still had two weeks to go, I'd have told them. I'd, I, I didn't tell them what I knew, but I, I could have. I could have told them, you guys are not going to probably not going to shoot a trophy, and, and that would have been exactly the case. Now, I'll tell you, if I was their outfitter with this information, I would have asked them one additional question. I would have wanted to know if there was any one location they could be at where many of the deer they were seeing would have passed within range of them. If this was the case, then I would have quickly relocated their stands. You see, sometimes when it comes to stand placement, uh, we just, a person just don't get it right to begin with, especially a novelist. He just won't get it right the first time. But when personal observation from the stand reveals this, we should not hesitate to relo relocate our stands. Now, the reason I wanted to relate this story is so you will realize that persistence, when taken alone, may not put the odds in your favor enough to put a mature buck within bow range of your stand, as would not any, really not any of the other three avenues I'm talking about when taken alone. If a person hunts the rut from a randomly picked tree, then he is betting purely on luck. If a person hunts in the best funnel in the woods, in a pressured area, weeks before rut movement begins, then his chances of killing a mature buck is extremely low also. 
if a person is hunting during the rut at the right at a location, let's say that moves the majority of the deer coming through the area within bow range of him, but only hunts one day every three weeks, he is again betting purely on luck. However, once we are hunting during the rut in a tight location, nothing means as much as does hunting time. That's what I want to try to impress on you and your listeners here today, Parker. So the third major reason I believe that most hunters fail to harvest mature bucks is their lack of persistence. Most hunters simply do not spend enough time in the deer woods hunting to give themselves a reasonable chance of success. When fishing, it's all about the number of casts we make. Actually, it's really about the amount of time our lure is in the water. When trapping, what matters most is the number of traps the trapper has set out. When hunting, it's all about the amount of time spent in a stand that makes the difference. This overrides everything else. The time a hunter spent, the time a hunter spent in a tree stand has a direct correlation with the number of opportunities he will have to arrow a trophy. It's all just simple second grade arithmetic. I wasn't very good in school, but now I can cipher second grade arithmetic. And <laughs> anybody can will understand this, and I'm fixing to try to point it out a little later here. Let's just take a, a systematic look at how the amount of time we spend hunting will increase our odds of shooting a trophy buck. And by doing so, this may help a lot of my listeners uh, be more dedicated to time in the woods. Let's again take some notebook paper and use it to help us see this point better as we did when we was talking about stand playing this spoon. In this scenario, let's say we are hunting a good funnel during the rut movement period because we have already discovered these two things increase the odds significantly that a mature buck will walk by our stands. Okay, during the 25 days of rut movement, let's consider there are around 12 hours of hunting light per day. This equals to about 300 hours of legal hunting time. During these 300 hours of daylight, let's assume that six mature bucks will pass through our hunting property. Okay, this scenario can be reflected and visualized by my readers by taking a piece of notebook paper and drawing lines on it. As in part two, let's turn the sheet of notebook paper horizontally and then let's draw a dark line halfway up through it to represent a restriction such as a ditch funnel. Now let's take an ink pen and draw three lines across the top of the paper spaced randomly and let's draw three lines, say they end up midway down or lower. When these lower lines intersect the dark line, we will have to draw them up and around the top of the dark line, which as we said represents a restriction. These six ink pen lines represent the movements of mature bucks across our hunting property. Because of the restriction, three of those bucks will move within range of our stand, 
if we are set up correctly, as I've discussed quite a bit during the last podcast. Now let's say instead of, uh, okay, let's take a look at this paper and, and see what it reflects for us. Pretty good chance, pretty good chance of us killing a mature buck. Of course, we're hunting 25 days and 12 hours of hunting life, and that equals about 300 hours. That's what this paper represents. Now let's say instead of hunting 300 hours or 25 days during the rut, we cut this time down in half, and we are only hunting 12 and a half days during the rut. This equals to 150 hours of hunting time, which means only three bucks will move through our hunting property while we are hunting. So now let's take a second sheet of notebook paper and sketch the same restriction, only instead of six horizontal lines, which signifies the movement of mature bucks, let's only draw three lines randomly spaced across the paper because we're only there half the time and during this time only half as many bucks will come through the woods while we're hunting. Now let's compare this to the first notebook paper side by side and we can see what hunting half the time does to our chances of success. It cuts our chances of shooting a mature buck in half. Keep in mind we only have this chance if we hunt all day long. Okay, now let's further look at this. I am afraid many of us, even those who have the time, may only may not even hunt 150 hours during the 25 days of rut movement. Many hunters will only hunt weekends, and this will cut our hunting time considerably. Let's say we only hunt Saturday and Sunday during the 25 days of rut movement. This will give us around seven days or 84 hours of hunting time. Uh, furthermore, let's consider that the average deer hunter will only hunt about three hours in the morning and two in the evening. Now, this is usually the case, and I know you realize this. Mm -hmm. This equals to five hours of hunting time per day instead of 12. And from what I understand, seven days times five hours in the stand adds up to about 35 hours of hunting time during the rut. This will cut our hunting time by around one-fourth from the 150 hours we had in this second sheet of paper. So let's take another sheet of notebook paper and turn it horizontally and draw our funnel. However, this time we will not draw any lines with the ink pen that represents mature buck movement because we have cut it by one-fourth of what we did with 150 hours. And by looking at this blank sheet of paper, we can see the average percent of chance we will have by only hunting mornings and evenings on the weekends. Even if we draw one randomly placed mark across the paper, representing a single mature buck movement, we can still see we will not have a much of an opportunity while hunting mornings and evenings during the weekends. And this will be the case even though we are hunting bucks in the rut when six mature bucks move through our hunting property and even though we have a great setup in a funnel. So I hope everyone can see by looking comparing these three pieces of paper what the odds are of killing a mature buck as we decrease our hunting time.
this one point is why the majority of hunters, I believe, will never have a chance to shoot a mature buck unless it is purely by luck. When you boil it all down, there are only two requirements for our on a trophy buck. One, there must be a buck you consider a trophy in the area you are hunting, and two, you must be there also. The rest is just cosmetics. Now, I realize people have family and jobs, and like I do, and other obligations that restrict their time, available time to hunt. However, it has also been my observation that a goodly number of people just do not have the tenacity to stick with it as they as much as they must do to give themselves a reasonable chance of success, considering the nomadic nature of our quarry. I realize some hunters' schedule will not permit them to hunt 25 days or even 12 during the rut. On the other hand, I also know hunters who could devote more time to hunting during the rut if they did not spend so much time in the woods before and after this time. Over the years, Parker, I've been acquainted with bow hunters who claim to be serious about bow tying a trophy, who will take a vacation at the beginning of archery season, just because it's been all year since they've got to hunt, and then they'll take another vacation from their job when firearm season opens, just because they love to firearm hunt, it seems easier to them. And, but this, in most states, takes place after much of the rut or all the rut is over. This is just not the way to go about killing a trophy buck. By the same token, I know many knowledgeable and serious trophy hunters who, who hunt the rut. They will schedule their vacation so they can travel to a trophy hotspot and try to kill a mature buck. These trophy hunters understand that the rut is the most important time of the year to be in the woods and they'll schedule their vacation accordingly. Even so, it has been my observation that there are two kinds of rut hunters. One is much more persistent in his hunting than is the other. Either one now will have a better chance than will the hunter who hunts very little or not at all during the rut. However, the one who is not persistent still does not even have a reasonable chance of success. I tell you, it all boils down to the amount of time a hunter spends in a stand. While both types of rut hunters will plan their season around the rut, one will say, and he may even believe that he hunts hard. However, I've been in the deer camp and in the woods and, and traveled with a lot of these hunters, and if they actually kept up with the hours they spend in a stand, he would realize his time is far short of the time needed to give himself a decent chance of success considering the nomadic nature and the rarity of, of a mature buck. The hunter who is not persistent, usually this is what happens. He'll, he'll be coming out of his stand two or three hours after daylight, and he'll spend the rest of the morning, I've seen it many times, he'll spend the rest of the morning walking around in the woods and, and driving the roads looking for a better spot or trying to just spot one of the monsters up there in the Midwest where he's traveled to. 
He'll spend his middays and even after dark at the local gathering place for other trophy hunters. And they'll be discussing sometimes until late at night the monster bucks they saw while walking in the woods or driving the back roads. This type of hunter will waste hours. He could be hunting at the local check-in station, socializing with other hunters and looking at the huge bucks that are being brought in. Many such trophy hunters will be on social networks discussing what movement they saw during that day and giving their input to what stage of the rut is taking place. They'll be passing along with their own spin, of course, other trophy hunter posts on social media that they thought was good advice on killing mature bucks. And they'll be using it, the gift of gab to impress other hunters of their house. And they will do this until late at night, even during the rut. It's a lot easier to sit in a chair at night, a comfortable chair behind a computer screen. And, and I realize that it's, it's, it's interesting and fun to discuss deer hunting. But they'll do this in the rut until late at night, and then they'll sleep in the next day, or they'll be so tired they cannot possibly hunt all day. Now, on the other hand, the persistent rut hunter will tally up. Now, this this is how I hunt and have always hunted. He will tally up many hours in the stand. He'll remain in the stand whether he's seeing deer or not, because he realizes that it's the rut and bucks are on the move and sooner or later one will move by his stand and it will do him no good if he's not there. His mindset and my mindset is that every minute of time that passes while deer hunting is one minute closer to getting a shot at a buck of a lifetime. Now that's the mindset you have to have as a long day draws on. And you have to also realize that the last five minutes of hunting time can produce the same, has the same chance of producing a trophy buck as does the first five minutes of hunting time. They just do not have the correct mindset. A lot of people don't when they're in the woods. The persistent Rudd Hunter will be spending his midday hours in solitude in a lonely deer stand, and after dark he'll rush home or to his motel or camper to prepare for tomorrow's all-day vigil before turning in. This persistent hunter is the one who will bring in the huge bucks for the hunters who are standing around at the checking station to look at. Diligence, Parker, defines success in our sport. And those who are willing to put it in, I welcome them to the solitary life of a trophy whitetail bow hunter because that is what it is. Okay, I want to mention one way to increase our time trophy hunting is to hunt all day long during the rut. Now, I realize from doing it for so many years, it's not always easy to sit and stand from daylight into dark. Uh, I struggled with it for a while, and then I was successful uh, many times doing so, and I realized how important it was. So I think everyone will find it easier if they understand it's worth the extra effort. 
it's like most things in life. If you see enough benefit, you'll find ways to defeat the negative issues that's associated with endeavor you're engaging in. While hunting early in the season to shoot does or for whatever reason, I believe most bow hunters become conditioned to believe that deer stop moving and bed down around mid-morning. Now this this is the case uh, early in the season and with a lot of does, uh, and especially if early in the season when the temperatures rise to the 70s and 80s. But I will assure you this is not the case during the rut, especially if the temperatures are seasonal or below. During the rut, mature bucks will move as much or more during midday hours as they do early and late in the day. Uh, as a matter of fact, w when I'm hunting during the rut, if I see a lone deer approaching my stand, say it's from a distance or I can't see his head, if I see a lone deer during the hours between, say, uh, noon and 2 o'clock, I immediately assume it is a mature buck. Mature bucks do not bed down or slow down their movement at all during midday hours. As a matter of fact, I believe they move more because they've learned a lot of the hunters are, have already left the woods during that time. I have killed many of my mature bucks during the middle of the day. In, in fact, Parker, I recently done an evaluation of the time of year that I've killed my older age class bucks, and this is five and a half years old and older, and I found that two were killed early in the morning, and two were shot in, in mid-morning, and two I killed during the middle of the day, that's from say 11.30 to 12.30, two were shot mid-evening, and two were killed in the late evening. So out of these 10 bucks, to be honest with you, only four of them would have been encountered by most hunters because they only hunt early and late in the day. And see, you say, well, that's four bucks I would have killed uh, early and late in the day. Well, not necessarily. You would have encountered them. It takes a lot of experience when encountering, encountering one of these really mature bucks. It takes a lot of experience to get an arrow in them. So, but anyway, they would have been encountered at that time. So the only way not to miss an opportunity, I can say this 100% fact, the only way not to miss an opportunity at a shot of a lifetime, at a buck of a lifetime, is to be in your stand from daylight until dark during the rut if temperatures support daylight buck movement. Now, whether or not I stay in a stand all day during the rut depends primarily on the temperatures. Now, if my schedule allows and the temperatures stay in the 50s or below for a daytime high, then I will stay in my stand all day without exception. This is the time of year, the rut is the time of year I've looked forward to for 11 months and mature bucks are going to be moving off and on all day, and I'm not going to let this time frame pass without hunting every minute I possibly can. 
But there is exceptions to this. I said if the temperatures stay in the 50s or below. If the temperatures do rise to, say, the upper 70s or higher, then I will sometimes take a break from about 12 until 2. You see, when it gets warm, mature buck movement will pretty much stop. They will bed down. And if I hunt all day when the temperature is, is, is this warm, I might unnecessarily burn myself out or a good standout. Plus, if I'm home and I've got other things around the house I can do that will allow me, when the temperature does turn right, that would allow me to hunt all day, then I'll try to do a few things. But now I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about hunting a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the evening. I probably will not come out to at least 12 o'clock. So that's one one point I wanted to make. And I'll tell you, the temperature is one thing we cannot control, and it does have a large bearing on our chances of success on any given day. If we're 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 always at the mercy of the weather. And if we have an unseasonably warm rut, which sometimes takes place, uh, maybe ever been my observation every five or six years, then it will limit it will limit the amount of time mature bucks will be on their feet during any given day. Warm daylight temperatures throughout the rut on a given day will certainly limit our chances of success during that year. It's just uh, it's it's mathematics. Mature bucks during the warmer parts of the day, if they're not on their feet all day, and they're not moving as many hours during daylight, then just by the by by the sheer figures of it, the numbers, the the odds of it, then our chances will be lessened on that given year. And uh, and the sad thing is. Uh, that's one thing one thing that we cannot control or do anything about. But let me go back and say if my schedule will not allow me to hunt all day during the rut, I wanna I wanna point this out. I will still go hunting every minute I can. Let's say I've got a an appointment or something out of my control that takes place, let's say in the morning and let's say uh, later on that evening maybe. Well if I can only get in the woods from ten until two on a particular day, I will go hunt. It is worth the extra effort. If I can only hunt for an hour and a half during the rut, I will make the effort to go do so. Now, I'd like to, to make mention of something else that I see that costs hunters precious hours in the deer stand besides not hunting all day. And this is a hunter's attitude toward a given situation. It's not the situation itself. Many hunters out for an all-day hunt, they will look for any reason or excuse to leave, or at least that's how it seems to me from talking to them and, and spending some time with some of them during the rut. And so what if another hunter walks by your stand or a pack of dogs or a coyote moves through the area? where you're hunting. Now, yes, they could spook a deer away that is moving towards you, but consider this. They are just as likely to jump a baited buck out of his sanctuary or change one's course and move him towards you. It's just as likely to happen. 
many times a hunter will leave a stand because of a change in wind direction. However, during the rut, I've had bucks approach me from upwind or downwind or crosswind or no wind at all. During the rut, I will usually hunt any wind direction, even though it's where I expect most of the deer are coming from. A mature buck during the rut could come right the opposite direction than you're thinking or expecting because of the way their nomadic nature during the rut. I will hunt any wind direction and I'll stick with it because to me time in the woods is more more important than a perfect wind. I will hunt any wind direction but what we call a swirling or a changing wind then I, I will come out if that is the case because I'm usually after a particular buck anyway and I certainly don't want him to smell me and don't want to education, educate him. During, during the rut, it's, it's not critical that every condition be perfect. A few times I've been sick or not slept good and got up a little later than I expected and it was daylight time I got up, I still went to the woods and hunted all day. Uh, every situation don't have to be perfect. A lot of times, actually, on many of the hunts that I consider just a screwed up hunt because of certain things happening, I ended up been one of my most successful ones. You know, what's what's vital what's vital in our quest to kill mature bucks is the amount of time spent in the woods hunting. Not that every situation will be perfect. Why do you think mature bucks are pretty much non existent in a heavily hunted area? Even if there are no advanced or knowledgeable hunters hunting that ground. It's because time in the woods equals dead deer. It's the, simply the law of average. So what I'm saying is do not look for or make excuses to leave your stand. Exercise some mental toughness. During the rut, if my schedule allows me to hunt all day, and that is my plan, nothing short of a swirling wind, an emergency, or unsafe hunting conditions will get me out of my stand. I have literally, Parker, eaten my weight in cheese and crackers while waiting on one of them old bucks. <laughs> now, there's things that can help a hunter stand stand longer. Uh, listen, you don't want to be cold. You don't want to be hot. You, you need to address where you can adjust for that. You don't need to be hungry. You need to take stuff that, that, that will fill that urge. Uh, and also, I'll tell you one of the best things that have, helps me. If I can't or don't plan to stay all day because of my schedule or, or wh whatever reason, and a lot of people have, like I said, families and obligations, listen, I always have a preset time to leave before I enter my stand. Now, if I don't set a time to leave beforehand, it's easy to talk myself into slipping out earlier than I should, especially if I'm not seeing much or any deer movement. Before entering, before entering your stand, a person should set a time to leave based on the temperature, the phase of the rut, and his schedule, and he should stick steadfast to that time whether he is seeing deer or not. I'll tell you, if you're hunting in the evening, never quit until the last legal minute of shooting time is upon you.
failure to follow this rule has cost many hunters, and myself including, much regret. So, before you, listen, never lie to yourself. If you say, listen, I've got to be somewhere at 12 so I can hunt the 1030. If you hadn't seen a deer up to 1030, you stay till 1030. If your schedule allows you and the temperature uh, dictates hunting all day long, then do not leave your stand no matter what. And just set a time before you go saying when you can leave and stick with it. Whether you're seeing deer or not, I never will forget one year I was hunting Illinois. And I was hunting a patch of wood that was surrounded by corn, but they'd picked the corn, so it was a picked cornfield. And it was in a doe's bedding area, and I figured my tear bucks would cruise through it looking for a hot doe. So I set up in it. And by 11.48, I wrote it down, I had not seen one single deer. 11.48. And I began to think, maybe a deer, since this corn's picked now, is not going to come through this vast open fields and come to this patch of woods this thicket here to, to check on hot does, even though it's the rut. But I stuck with it. I had a sandwich, and I stuck, if I didn't have a sandwich, I would have stuck with it. But I stuck with it, and at 11.48, I had some rattling horns tied to a string, and I lowered them on the ground, and at 11.48, I heard them horns rattle, and I looked down, and there was a buck. It was probably looked like he's two foot across his back to run over them horns. And he went out there, and he was about 150, 155 inch ten point. And I didn't, I didn't want him. But I looked up, and he he bristled up, and I looked up, and entered that thicket on the other side was a big, big mainframe eight with a big drop tine, and he was a good deer too, close to. I was trying to decide whether I wanted to shoot him or not, and and they got to challenge each other and left the thicket, and it turned out a good thing. I shot a 180 something inch buck a couple of days later on public ground. But what I'm saying is, and let me say this, after that quick encounter of five minutes, I never seen another deer until dark. Deer hunting's not like most sports where there's a gen, slowly general build-up to a climax. You may sit all day long until 12 o'clock and nothing happened, and then all of a sudden the buck of a lifetime is moving in front of you. I'll tell you something. I was in uh, Ohio here a few years ago, took a buddy of mine that never had had a chance to hunt out of state or kill any big deer. And it was the rut, and I told him we was going to hunt all day long. And he said, well, I'm, I always leave the woods about 10. I quit seeing deer. And I said, well, sure, early in the year you will, and it gets warmed in September and early October, and, and doe was pretty well bed down even during the rut, you know, during that time. But I said, it's not the case hunting with your bucks. And we was sitting there, and it was around noon. And I told him, I said, you eat your sandwich first, and I'll keep a good eye. Then I'll eat, and you can keep a good eye. And he just did not see the use in going to such extremes. In the middle of the day, we hadn't seen but maybe one or two deer real early in the day. And he just, I, I said, listen, this is how it's going to happen and, and will happen, may happen. I said, we're going to be hunting a week here. 
I said, we'll be sitting here in the middle of the day, bored to death, and had not seen a deer in two hours, and we'll look up, and I'll say, there he comes. There comes one. Get ready. And about that time, I looked to my left, and there come a big old mature buck that we'd already seen a few days before, and we knew he would want to shoot it. And I said, matter of fact, there he comes. Go ahead and get ready. And he just kept sitting there. And he realized he thought I was either pulling his leg or thought I was repeating what I said. And I said, uh, no, guy, I'm, I'm serious. There's a, a big buck coming toward us right now. You need to get up and get your bow. And that's how it happens. Sometimes you'll sit there bored to death, and there's no climax. There's no slow build-up. So that's what I'm saying. And I will I will bet on a mediocre hunter, Parker, who puts in a lot of time, day after day, in the deer stand over a very advanced hunter who only hunts a few hours on the weekends. That's just the way it is. I feel that this one point keeps more knowledgeable deer hunters from becoming outstanding trophy killers. They they either do not have the time or they don't have the tenacity to stick with it. You must practice some serious patience if you're going to be a successful trophy whitetail hunter. While hunting mature bucks, nothing means as much as the amount of time spent in the woods hunting. Nothing. Parker, you you and my readers, you can believe that. Now, I want to speak on one other thing here, and it's the luck factor, and it ties right into this. This is another point we should consider when we're looking at the benefits of spending a lot of times in a tree stand, and that is luck. The more I hunt, the luckier I get. Let me say this. The events of chance which take place in the deer woods that will equal success for you will not help you one bit if you are not in the woods hunting. Let me say that again. The events of chance which take place in the deer woods that will equal success for you will not help you one bit if you're not in the woods hunting. Now, everything, as you know, and most of my listeners know, if they've hunted mature bucks a lot, everything must take place just right for you to get an arrow in the chest of an old buck. A mature buck may unexpectedly take a detour that leads him out of bow range, or the wind may change momentarily, and this has happened a lot with me, and shift in his favor at just the wrong time when he's getting close to me being able to get a shot. Uh, One may move by too fast for you to get him to stop for a shot. Everything's got to happen just right. A doe may lead him away just before he gets within bow range. These are factors that are really out of our control that can happen and cause us to miss a shot at a a once-in-a-lifetime buck. Bad luck, we call it. And I am certain, as most of my listeners and you are aware, Parker, this does take place. Well, how can we turn the table around and cause good luck, or lady luck, as she's sometimes called, to shine on us? and put the odds in our favor in circumstances out of our control. I don't believe in fate, Parker, but I do believe in luck. There is only one way I know to have more good luck 
only one way, and that's to spend more time in the deer woods hunting. Good luck will come your way if you are patient enough and wait on it. I'm a tear buck may be traveling just out of bow range and a coyote may change his course and move him by your deer stand. The wind may change in your favor just as a monster buck approaches. Uh, he may stop with his head behind a tree just at the right time for you to draw and shoot even though he was passing through fast. A hot doe may lead a once in a lifetime buck by your stand. I realize sometimes it seems like all the brakes go for the for the deer and not for us. But this is not always the case. If you hunt long enough, then some of the brakes will come your way. For those of us who work really hard and hunt long hours, luck is an art in and of itself. I spend a lot of time in the woods and I have experienced bad luck, and I also have hunted long enough to experience good luck. It seems to equal out the longer I hunt. The old saying, the more I hunt, the luckier I get, has a great deal of truth to it. A buck must be lucky every day of his life. On the other hand, we need to be lucky only once, and he will roll up his little ball of yarn. It's curtains for him. Even though there are favorable conditions that take place in our favor in the deer woods, they will not help us one bit if we're at home sitting on the couch. <clears throat> now, I, I must admit, it is extremely hard to sit on a stand all day, day after day. However, if you're determined enough, you'll learn to deal with it. This is what separates the men from the boys and the trophy hunters from the trophy killers. When we're talking about true top-end bucks, the opportunity to shoot one of these rare animals is nearly always an unexpected occurrence. If the opportunity comes, it will more than likely be a, a sheer, uh, the result of the sheer amount of time a hunter spends on a stand. That's usually the the way these once in a lifetime bucks are killed. I want to. I, I read a quote. I want to. I think a quote by Calvin Coolidge puts it very well. <clears throat> I'd like to quote that to you. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than it unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are often. The slogan press on has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. I think this quote puts what I am trying to say here very well. And you might have wanted you might have enjoyed it more if I'd have just read this quote and shut up, but I had a few more things to say. <laughs> just don't overlook the value, the value of the importance of time spent in the woods when you're trophy deer hunting. Nothing means as much. Nothing. Now before I close, I wanna use say a word of caution here concerning hunting 
over hunting a piece of property because, as I said to begin with, there's exceptions to everything, and we must realize when we do experience an exception. There's just exceptions to every rule, and when it comes to whitetail, it seems like there's plenty of them. Uh, and this exception also applies to the amount of time you spend at one location. An exception to what I'm talking about, Parker, would apply if you only have one small parcel of ground available to hunt. In this case, it would indeed be possible to hunt too often. You will know when you are overpressuring an area because you will see fewer deer on each outing. This will indicate to you that the local deer herd has become aware that you, you're out to get them, and they have either relocated or are holding tight during the daylight. Now, to avoid burning out your stand in this situation, it is advisable to give a property a few days rest between hunts. Now, I don't know many people that just hunts one small parcel of land. If I had one small parcel of land to hunt that was really hot, and I thought a buck I wanted to kill was on it, then I would hunt it, like I said, and give it a few days rest. But during those few days rest I was giving it, there's plenty of public ground probably where everybody I'm talking to here can drive to. Well, I would certainly drive to a public piece of ground and hunt during the days I was giving my small property a rest because nothing means as much as time in the woods. So there's ways to get around this. But if you do have a small parcel of land, along with giving your stand an occasional break, I also recommend that you hunt low-impact stand locations around the perimeter of the property. Now, normally I hunt high-impact stands in the heart in the heart of the action by using extreme stealth. That said, if I'm hunting a small tract of land, I back off this aggressive approach. On a small piece of hunting ground, if there's a piece I'm hunting that's quite small and there's a buck on it I want to kill, uh, I'll say 80 to 90% of the interior of the property I will make off limits. I will only hunt the outside edge of the property. I'll approach it from different directions and have a good stand locations but I would never walk through a very small parcel of land. I would give 80 to 90% of that land completely, I'd say it's completely off limits. And by practicing this prudent stand management approach, we can create a refuge and are just hunting the perimeter of the refuge. Now this will give the local deer a feeling of, a false feeling of security. And, of course, there must be habitat diversity on this property or this strategy will not improve our odds. If the ground consists of only open, see-through, like see-through hardwoods, I call it see-through woods, only open see-through woods with no thicket or no undergrowth, the deer won't feel secure enough to stay no matter how undisturbed they are. And that's just the truth about it. And, you know, a person needs to look elsewhere and consider his options on some 
on some public ground. I've killed most of my big deer on public ground. Well, and let me say, having having mentioned now at closing this, I want to say that I've covered pretty in depth now. I think the three major reasons most hunters don't succeed in their quest for a trophy. Now, I want to take a, uh, just a second here and talk about another element which I think has a large, large bearing on our hunting success. But keep in mind that nothing will amount to a hill of beans unless you are efficient in the three major elements I have discussed. But whether we are hunting, fishing, trapping, or engaging in any other pursuit of living creatures, the number the numbers, the sheer numbers of the game we are after makes all the difference to a successful outcome. Quantity matters, and it matters a lot. It is simply an issue of availability. The more game there is in the vicinity of where we are pursuing them, the greater our chances is. It all comes down to mathematics. If you want to shoot a true top-end buck, you must hunt in a location where they exist in good numbers. This should go without saying, but just in case it don't, I wanted to mention this before I close. Some people are just hunting a state and parts of a state where they're, they're just spending years there hunting, and when they, if it was to pull up stakes and travel to the Midwest, even public ground, where the numbers of the deer that the numbers of the deer that's a quality they want exist in good numbers, then I think they would be amazed at their success. I really believe that there's a lot of outstanding trophy hunters out there that's never killed what most hunters would consider a trophy because of where they hunt. But that's just something I just wanted to mention. So there you have it from a lifetime of hard hunting. I have come to understand that there are three things that will enhance your chances that a mature buck will walk by your stand during legal shooting hours. These three things now, when they're taken together, will increase your odds of success like nothing else can. I could talk for many hours on one, any one of the avenues of bow hunting trophy whitetails and they all have their place. Uh, you you can get on the internet and get on these chat sites, uh, I've been told, and read all about uh, all kinds of tactics and games people play and and uh, want to talk about the, how white-tailed deer, the philosophy of them, and their biological makeup, and that's all, that's all fine and good. They all have their place, but they have their place once a person understands how to get a mature buck in front of his stand. See, that's where most hunters are failing. And all this other stuff is just cosmetic modifiers if you don't know how to do that. And you will be disappointed at the end of the season or maybe shoot a, a lot of these Internet experts. they <coughs> not putting them down, but they a lot of them are killer two or three hundred and forty inch, three and three and a half year olds in their life, or they may kill uh, uh, one just outstanding monster buck uh, 
in their lifetime by, by luck. It'll happen if you hunt enough. But I'll just tell you, until you implement the three things that I've talked about, then I believe that all other considerations on the subject of trophy whitetail hunting will be rendered useless unless it is purely by luck or the chance that an individual has a very special place to hunt that no one else can hunt that it has a goodly number of mature bugs. But I had never had that situation. I've always hunted mostly public ground. I'm telling you, there's no mystery or secret to it. It's all about knowing what is important. Now, now that you have this knowledge, and now that my listeners have this knowledge, they can decide for themselves. Do they have the time, and are they willing to put in the time and effort to fully implement this knowledge, these tactics. It's not easy. It's not easy to hunt like I hunt. It's not easy to... A lot of people maybe will see something take place. Let me give you one example when I say it's not easy. If it's during the rut, a lot of people will see something take place during the day a couple of times. A mature buck do something a couple of times in a row and decide they need to move and They'll, they'll, they'll move during the midday hours or in the evening or the next morning. I would get up in the middle of the night and go move. Many times I've waited to seen I need to move a stand, and I, I waited till rain come where it would hide my scent, and I'll get up in the middle of the night once it starts raining and go move a stand maybe two or three and do it by myself. It's all about tenacity, and it's all about understanding that time spent in the woods hunting is more important than moving a stand. Uh, I can tell you many stories about things like that that's turned out correct and turned out turned out useful for me. It's it's not easy. The older you get, the more you sit in a stand all day long, your back gets hurt and then you have aches and pains and I've I figured that out but it's it's all about it's all about mental toughness and, and whether you're willing to sacrifice what it takes or not. Many hunters are not. They're just not willing to, I mean, they, they talk they talk a, a good hunt, but when it comes right down to to implementing it, they just fall far short of where they should be to be successful. And that's the reason I wanted to, again, use those three sheets of paper and, and have everybody sketch it out. And if you do that and you lay them out and look at them they say they say uh, it, it paints a picture and they say one of them is worth a thousand words so I, <laughs> I think I think that's what I've heard before yeah. I think it's official for everybody to consider the amount of time they're in the woods and then I think they can go back and then consider all three points I have brought up uh, like I said, there's no mystery or secret to it to me anymore. I understand what's important, and all I need to decide is do I want to put in the the effort that it's required to implement these all these three points fully. And that's that's about it, Mr. Parker. When it comes down to it. Well, you know, I I've listened now. I've listened multiple times now to all three parts of of this, even after. We have the initial conversation and 
there's there's a couple of things that come to my mind if you don't mind me asking a few questions and some of these are my questions and some of them are questions that I maybe I've had or um, other listeners have brought to my attention and and I, I I feel like you have a pretty good grasp on them um, but the, the first thing that I, that I think about most of our listeners are hunting on public land and on public land obviously the main issue is hunting pressure when you're going out and you are um you're hunting an area you're hunting it hard is there a factor that you're you're trying to get away from other hunters we haven't really discussed that like are you going as deep as you can trying to get to unpressured areas when you're specifically when you're hunting on public land i I am i have found that Two to three hundred yards will get most of the hunters. Uh, if you will, I always, when I hunted public land, I would, back then, of course, we didn't have cell phones and internet like we do now. I'm aging myself a little here, but <laughs> I would, I would call, I would call and get maps of the areas, then I'd get topo maps of them. And then I would mark off a parameter that I absolutely, now I shouldn't say absolutely, that I under normal circumstances would not consider hunting. Mature bucks, as bucks as they get older on pressured land, they will learn that the access roads, they will learn within 300, maybe even 400 yards of the access road, they occasionally counter humans, and they will move more and more than interior but inside that interior they will go on if they're n- not being nocturnal because it's the rut and they're moving during daylight they will carry on their activity in the interior of that property where they've learned that they encounter very few hunters just as as they would in a non-pressured area their activity is the same now, occasionally, I have found mature bucks close to access roads. I have occasionally found pieces of property that is so so much undergrowth and so rough a terrain that most hunters will step off into it, and before you know it, they're coming back out of it. And those are the ones I look for, too. Of course, I'm scouting during the spring, and... Large rubs and scrapes, mature buck sign will dictate where the bucks are during the rut. Just going in the spring and find the sign. And one of the greatest bucks I've ever hunted and killed was very close to a road. I call it a honey hole by the highway. But it was in a thicket that was just unbelievable. It was between two major roads where he was bedding. But he had found a place that he had not encountered human pressure and felt secure there. So... A lot of hunters will try to figure uh, where the deer will go to escape, uh, say, when the hunting pressure starts or or different avenues or tactics from that differ from the three points I have mentioned. No, I don't do that. I, I hunt. I know what the bucks will be doing during the rut. They're going to be certain times looking for the first hot doe. They're going to be locked down, and then they're going to be between does. And I hunt just as I would anywhere else. That's how I hunt the public land, and it has served me well by hunting the tightest funnels in the woods. Uh, but let the buck sign dictate where you hunt. 
during October and November, uh, Buck is going to be making signs. And the, the sign, the rubs don't have to be necessarily big to be made by The damage dictates that. The damage, the, how deep the scrape is, whether it's bowled out and piled out pretty deep or not, dictates that. Uh, me and a friend of mine, Chris Anderson, last year in some public ground, and they just so happened that year that they had beans in the crop fields that the farmers could plant and harvest. I knew then that the be frequent in them fields at night, so we went around all the bean fields and found the ones that, out of several bean fields we walked, we would occasionally find one of an exceptionally large track, and he was coming to the fields at night. And then we started backing up into the woods further and further until we found a tight funnel, and, and then we would walk and scan the area around the funnel to make sure there was large rubs and scrapes from the year before because if they were not, then during the rut, that deer was elsewhere that we'd found a sign on. So that's that's a little bit of how I hunt. But now, I tell you, when I traveled to the Midwest, when I used to do a lot of traveling on public ground and hunting public ground, and I've killed many of six and a half, seven and a half year old deer doing that, 180, killed three in the 180s up there like that, and several in the 170s. I, and it don't matter if they're 170 or 180, if they're mature, they, 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 all they may do is a 160, you know, uh, just according to how their headgear is put together and the, the genes they have. But I tell you, I was I was successful at it, but I would call, I did not like an area that was gun hunted or, or had very much firearm hunting. I would always look for archery only, and I would always look for a very large area because it's just simple mathematics. Uh, you can get 20 hunters on one piece of ground, and it's pretty heavily hunted, and 20 on a piece of ground that's four times larger, and it's not heavily hunted. So I would always look for a large piece of ground, and I'll try to find a bow hunting only area, and that, that increased my chances. Now, sometimes I did hunt gun hunted areas for, for certain reasons, because they were extremely large. But that's and I would always talk to the uh, rangers and the uh, area manager, and I always wanted to know particularly if there was any very large deer being seen or had been seen the year before, or previous years. Because I mean, exceptional deer. Because I wanted to get in there and hunt that deer. That's mm -hmm. just some people. You don't have to. Don't get me wrong. You don't have to be a trophy hunter to enjoy deer hunting, and uh, you, you you don't have to kill uh, 180. And, 90-inch deer to be, be a good hunter, but that's just what I like. I like big bone, and, and I, I just think it's a very fascinating thing to see a buck coming through the woods that's carrying a 180-inch rack. It's just what, what thrills me. I'm not saying that that's the same with everybody, or it should be the same with everybody. But that's kind of how I went about hunting public ground. I scouted it. I looked for my funnels, and... Uh, I looked for funnels, particularly with big sign, but they didn't have to have. And uh, and uh, I would try to find an archery only and a, and a bigger than normal piece of ground is how I'd go about it. And uh, that was that was how I was successful. Okay. I mean, that makes a whole lot of sense, you know. Um, one of the things that we've talked about several times on this podcast, uh, not this specific episode, but in, in other episodes with other guests is – very similar to what you're talking about, you know, finding those spots. I have found the same thing. My general rule 
you know, if I, especially if I'm walking into an area and not using a boat or something like that, if I'm walking into an area, I'm usually trying to go a mile, find those terrain features that are, you know, a mile or so out. And so that makes, makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, I, I, what it seems like to me, and, and this is the question a lot of people had, it, it seems like you're targeting, well, it doesn't seem like it. I know you're targeting specific bucks most of the time when you're, scout you so you're scouting in the off season and you're going in and you're finding those funnels and you're finding that big sign um how are you going about locating a specific buck what after you've done all that scouting and you've you've got your obviously you've got your trail cameras hung and you're but the but the sign and where that buck might be living in the off season oftentimes does not correlate um, how are you going about, like, kind of backtracking from the rut sign to finding that target buck? Well, now, trail cameras nowadays is a huge asset to my hunting. Like I said, the three major points I talked about mean everything, but there's trail cameras and mock strafes and different things we do that, of course, that within these three elements that really help us i don't go i'm i'm i don't go to an area and hunt it one year uh, some of these places like uh in iowa and different places where you normally get a tag every three or four years i just i don't do that because there's no way to find a specific bug it would be i would have to it, it's possible i could drive up there and find a, a big rack buck at say out in the crop field uh during the late evening say and August and then drive back and burn hunting, but normally that's not what I do. Normally uh, I hunt a place three or four years, and I want to hunt a place that I can hunt three or four years. And say I'll put out quite a few cameras in tight funnels and on mock scrapes, and and uh, during the summer we're illegal on on the mineral licks, and then I will find a particular buck, and if he's not quite the age I want, but I see he's wide and got long tines and and has potential then that's then I'll target that buck three or four years down the road or I may on a mineral lick or in a tight funnel I may I may get pictures of a specific large buck and then I will target that buck and then if I lose him I'm not getting the pictures of him I want I know I'm probably not in his core area and may be in his home range, or I may be in his secondary home range, or I may have even got his picture on a mineral lick. I've done this before, in between home ranges. If I get a picture on mineral lick once a month, I'm in not in that buck's home range. I'm not in his core area, and probably not even in his home range. I'm probably on a travel route between two home ranges, because once they get hooked on a good mineral lick, they're going to come to it every two or three nights, if not daily. So you got to use a lot of common sense, and you may have to spread your cameras out in a, over a large area to, and then when you start getting pictures of him in a particular type of fun or on a mineral lick or at a feeding source regularly, then you know you have narrowed it down to his primary home range or his core area. But while ago you said when you find a big sign, you might not be set up on him. Yeah, yeah. If you find a big sign, that's where he's at during the rut. Now you put your cameras out and verify that it's it's that buck. But just because you're not seeing him, 
does not mean he's not there. I know so many people that see big rubs and stripes and show them to me, and they're just not seeing the buck, and they say, well, he's coming through at night. The same buck that's coming through at night, and you get a picture of him a couple of times at night, that is where you hunt even in the daytime. Once, seeing a buck do something once or getting his picture done once, it's the same thing. But once is an occurrence. I mean, it's just an event. Now, twice, twice is, is a habit. When when they do something twice, if he when he does it third time, if he's a buck I want. I will be there. Period. Yeah. I've used that many times. Uh, but a lot of people are getting a big sign and maybe getting a picture of a buck at night or in the daytime, and they think. Uh, They've got one picture. Well, that's okay. You keep monitoring that area, and you spread your cameras out a little bit in other funnels in the area. If it don't happen again, then you spread them out very widely and try to find it here. If it does happen again, and there's multiple big signs making, and different rubs and strays have characteristics of different bucks, but that's just another rabbit hole. But a lot of people say, well, I've got his picture, or I've seen him once, and I just can't kill him. If you really narrowed it down and asked that individual to how much time he was hunting, you might find out a day or two a week and maybe early morning, late evening. Most of the time when there's a big buck in the area, I will kill him. And the reason I will kill him is the sheer the amount, just surely the amount of time I put in the woods. I will, I will put enough time in the odds change from his favor to my favor. Yeah, that makes that makes a whole lot of sense to me. And um, you know, I think I think a lot of it what it comes down to what you what you're saying is is finding that core area, like trying to narrow it down into that core area. And uh so the the last question that I have and multiple people actually ask this question um and it and it seems like I'm sure you've been asked this before, but I'm just kind of interested to know and, and a lot of listeners are interested in the, to know this too. Are there certain things that dictate your time? Obviously, we talked about weather, um, but even going further than that, do you pay much attention to um, moon phases or barometric pressure? Uh, does that have any correlation with the the bigger bucks that you've killed in your lifetime? It does not. Now, I know a lot of people... A lot of people uh, advertise uh, correlation and uh, not saying that they hadn't seen some in the moon phase. I'll tell you, daylight temperatures has always dictated for me when I will take to my best stands and, and hunt the hardest. I remember in 99, it was a unseasonably warm rut from November 1st until the 28th. The daytime temperature was in the 80s, and the nighttime was in the 60s. It was just awful, and I just pretty well stayed out of the woods. Then on the 28th, the weatherman said that we're going to finally get a cold front, and tomorrow the temperature will be for a high 50 degrees. Well, I called work and told them I was taking off, and I sat all day, and... At 12.05, the seventh buck come through my ditch funnel with a big material 10-point, and I killed him. Anytime it's been unseasonably warm during the rut and then the temperature turns cold, then nothing 
means as much to deer movements, to enhance deer movement as that. i tell you, one year, a few years, I believe, I know photoperiodism, and I've talked a little bit about it, governs the breeding cycle. That's how they key off of it for optimal fawn survival and uh, whatever species we're talking about. Photoperiodism means everything. It's it's how their biological clock is set to breathe, uh, the amount of daylight in a 24-hour day. But you know what? I have seen cases all my life of temperature having a, an effect also. Not an equal effect, but an effect. I remember, oh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, we had a December, a week in December, where it was in the 80s and really warm at night, too. It was just so warm that people got concerned that it was something uh, dramatic taking place. And I sat in a tree stand one morning, and I bet I heard a turkey gobbler gobble a hundred times. And then the next day, I couldn't see them, but there was two gobblers gobbling on each side of a hen that was in a tree, and she flew down, and she cackled and went through the same exact vocalization, and the gobblers did too. I don't know if they were mating or not, but they went through the same vocalization as as mating birds, and I honestly believe they were. And that was in December after a week of extremely warm weather. Uh, temperature overrides, it, it trumps moon phase 100% to me. Day, daylight temperatures. Uh, during the rut is what I look to and what is the most. I tell you, one November up in Illinois, I normally arrived up there back then about the 22nd or 23rd and get everything kind of in place and be ready to go by the 25th. Of course, usually I knew exactly where I was going to be hunting because I hunted year after year. And I got up there on the 22nd one year and they had Everybody was seeing my tear bucks. They was running, and they had been several killed. And it was because of the temperature. We had four or five days. The highs was in the 40s. So that temperature will shift the rut movement of my tear bucks either way some, either later or earlier. And it is extremely important to watch the daylight temperatures. And I think that overrides overrides everything. Not photoperiodism, but I'll tell you, it is, sometimes I think it's about equal to it. And I have not noticed any correlation in deer movement over moon phase, barometric pressure, or anything else. Now, I will say this. Uh, I like a, I think they move better weather, again, weather, not moon phase, but when it's a clear cold front, a high pressure just simply because it is just colder generally in a high pressure and, and good clear blue bird sky, good clear cold. People, some people like to hunt in the rain and the fog and they, I, I tell you, a good cold high front is what I look for, the high temperatures and the high front and the good cold temperatures is what I most often look for when it, when, if I, if I've not got much time to hunt and I do have a week, and I will pick temperatures, even over even over the phase of the rut. I'll tell you, uh, the area I talk about from southern Tennessee up to Canadian border, it, it's good to n know what takes 
place during what times. I might mention a few things about that. From If it's unseasonably cold or seasonally cold, from about October 25th to about November 2nd or 3rd, mature bucks will be in their home range and in their core area keeping a check on the area family group of those, and they will be making scrapes and rub lines down their travel corridors in these areas advertising their their appearance to those. Now they will start that before then, but what I'm saying is after November after October twenty fifth, if it's good and cool, then they will what what was nighttime appearances on your camera will turn into daytime appearances. But now once you get into about November second or third, the first does will start smelling and they'll be a few hours away from coming in, and a few of them may actually come in. Of course, there's, like I said, exceptions to every rule. But if you miss being in your stand November 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, right in there, if you miss that, or if it is unseasonably warm during that period, then the best chance of the year will escape you. You should be in your stand daylight to dark, between November 2nd or 3rd until about the 6th or 7th because that one short period of time, there will be more mature buck movement during daylight hours than all the other parts of that rut combined. So I hunt the corridors, big stripes and rubs, uh, October 25th to about November 1st if it's unseasonably cold, and then I will move to my funnels I will set up on them, and I will be setting our daylight to dark if the temperature dictates it because that is when the first door or two starts smelling and the big bucks know it, and they're running just as far and cruising, what you want to say cruising, or I call their running. They get going hard and fast looking for that first doe before the next buck finds them. And after that, you get into a period when they're locked down with several hot does, but there is always, during that time, after about 48 hours of being with one, he will get on his feet and get to looking for the next one, and that's why I continue to hunt funnels until the end of that rut movement period. I guess I went down a rabbit hole there. That's okay. Uh, okay. That is fine. I, and I think it's important, too, as I'm sitting here listening to it, I'm, I'm making it work for where I hunt. I think it's important to know when that period starts and ends in your area you know alabama is is different than a lot of states if you're hunting in alabama and you're listening to this you're like november october november ain't anywhere close to the rut in a lot of our states so it's important to know that time wherever you're hunting i realize most people in most states are gonna relate to exactly what you're saying uh mr bobby but you know for us for us alabama some mississippi um, Florida, there's just going to be a, a, a slight difference in, in that time frame. So it's important to know that. But, but man, I... maybe a big difference. Yeah. As I said, when I started that little period, talking about the rut moving period, that's like I talked about earlier. It's throughout the Midwest from southern, from where I hunt, from the southern Tennessee line up to Canada. Now, that's the time frame of them 25 period a day mm -hmm. period. Anyway, you hunt, you must find and know, and it is extremely important to know when that period takes place at your location. 
and some states actually the rut will vary uh, according to what part of the state it is because deer was stocked in from so many places at uh, different places and there are so many subspecies of whitetail you know mm-hmm. so, well here we've got the virginia the and then on up in the midwest the northern woodland mostly in the dakotas you know so it is extremely important to know in your location, when that period of time is, or you can spend a lot of time hunting in a, at a time frame that is not beneficial, and you can miss, you may miss that one, like I said, most important week when the first does start start to come in, and if you miss that, then uh, you have just uh, lowered your chances extremely. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just hard hard for me to say how much you have lowered them if you miss that important week when they first start cruising when the big bucks uh, start cruising looking for that first hot dog when they first start one or two first start smelling and getting ready to pop in mm-hmm. yeah well man i do appreciate it again bobby that i've uh i've heard like i said i've heard nothing but good feedback and i'm sure uh i'm sure there's people that are going to have tons more questions but we're going to have to get you on again sometime soon. I know we've talked a lot the last three weeks, uh, so I feel like I've kind of got to know you pretty good, and I know our listeners feel the exact same way. Um, but, man, we have really, really, truly enjoyed having you on the show. Well, I appreciate you, you all having me and, and 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 making me feel like uh, like I'm important to some people and, and uh, giving me an outlet. Everybody that reaches uh, – certain level of knowledge and expertise uh now it's natural for them to look for an outlet to share their knowledge and that's that's what you've given me here and i really appreciate that and i appreciate the good comments from your listeners and i appreciate uh them listening to me and giving me that opportunity to to be heard so uh, i thank you and yeah just let me know and we might cover another subject or two sometime. There's a lot of avenues that we can talk about, but I wanted to—I didn't want to go down any of them much. I wanted to really impress these three important avenues of trophy hunting because unless they're adhered to and taken together, uh, I, I think a person really lowers his chances of success. But all three do, like I said, do the same thing. They increase the odds that a mature buck will walk by your stand, and which that is what most hunters are liking. They just don't have the shot opportunity. And so uh, maybe this will help them to realize why that is the case. Absolutely. I think they will. Well, Bobby, I do appreciate it again, man, and, uh, and have a good one. Thank you. Good evening.